it's been a while since we last did Dragons of Spring Dawning Part 1. Um, I'd like to say there were good reasons for it, and there aren't. Um, so it's just been basically, I got, um, the one day we were going to do an episode and I hadn't done my due diligence and gone back and read the material again and formed any opinions that I could discuss. Um, it's just because sometimes, you know, life happens and, you know, work and, you know, you just have things like that. So also, we also had a, uh, a one-off, if you guys like that one, I did I did indeed like doing it. The Krypton versus Viltrum is a lot of fun to do. Um, I think we're going to do more of those style later, but I'm trying to never make such a gap in between uh, a book as I did this time. And um, this this part of, uh, this is Dragon Spring Dawning Part 2, and I think it's really going to be a good one. So. we're in this uh, in this story it had been uh, Lorana had turned back the with the aid of dragon lances um, had turned back the uh, the dragon armies um, coming towards Palanthus at the High Claris Tower Um, it was a pretty unexpected and stunning victory Um, she also we also lost sadly though uh, the the great character and you know just so much of a uh, uh, who grew so much as a character and now his presence is sorely missed is stern bright blade he really sacrificed himself to win and found peace within himself and answered the call on being a true knight that was a very you know going back and reading that um uh, of course I don't have as many emotions as I did the first time because it was a shock the first time I read it. And, um, you, you know, but now being an adult and being a little bit more uh, emotionally mature, it is, um, it's, it was a very powerful emotional moment, especially his, if you'll remember his funeral, which I read in full because you just can't leave anything out of that because it was too good. Um, in this part, uh, the dragon armies are again coming toward Palanthus. They, um, only this time there's dragons and but dragons there were dragons last time of course but there are only a few and they had the age of a drag of a dragon orb there is no more dragon orb right now so um you know i don't know if they explained why that the the one was not in use at uh, the high claris tower you know um I'm pretty sure it's the high class t- Claris Tower. You have to forgive me. It's it it, it has been a minute, and we're it's going to be a little bit of catch up here. Um, but the point is, is that Lorana uh, led them to a victory. She uh, encountered Kittyara for the first time. The meeting of uh, the two halves of Tannis's uh, his dual nature, his human side and his elven side, and you know everybody knows I'm not a fan of Kitiara, and we're going to see that a lot of people in this story, in this upcoming upcoming chapters, are not as well. Um, 
chief among those, one being uh, Flint. Flint does really not like her. So, um, how does Tasselhoff feel? Tasselhoff, of course, would think she's fun, but then he comes to some realizations too. He's Kendra don't see things in terms of you know they don't go deeper than usually what's on their plate. You know, so Kitty R was always fun, of course, but then he. We'll get into it. He kind of sees her for what she is finally. I mean, because he he goes through some he's lost people now. I mean Tessoff Burfoot is probably unlike any Kinder in Ancelon. Uh, there are Kinder in Talitus called the Merrick Kinder who are their lives are nothing but loss and hardship. So they has turned them into much different into a much different race. They are not happy go lucky. They're not, you know, if you can imagine a a Tasselhoff Burfoot who dresses all in black and uh, is suspicious of everything as opposed to curious of everything. He goes through people's pouches, not because he is curious, but because he doesn't want anything in there to hurt him. And that's because their lives during the cataclysm or as, as it's called in Taudus, Hitez night was especially hard on the, on the Merak Kinder. And they choose to still, still, still live in the Merak Valley for some reason. I guess it's like, it the description of it kind of reminds me of Appalachia in a way. Only if we had sulfur laden streams and rivers, and you know monsters crawling out of you know storms of acid rain and stuff like that. You know, it's a very grim. You know, the people are very grim and have almost a a very fatalistic gallows humor about everything. The dwarves that live there are like that. The kinder are like that. There's different races, and they just they're not having a good time. And I don't know why they don't move. And I mean, there are things to sell you on Appalachia. I love it here, but we don't have monsters and sulfur streams and acid rain. I mean, so far as I can tell, um, we have monsters. They're called politicians. <laughs> Ooh, such a hot take. Big hot take. <laughs> um, we start out, started out. Remember, as Dennis is pulling out this head, come. He's the big uh, that immortal uh, historian for Crin. And he's come to talk to Lorana and basically gave them the lowdown of so many different things. And um, then something very unexpected happens. A, uh, a griffin shows up with a message, and it turns out that Lord Gunther turns the command of the armies over to Lorana. Like she has become officially the general leading these entire leading the whole thing this is very progressive for 1984 it surely is i mean and she is ex- an extremely progressive character her and kitty are both are progressive characters you know kitty are in a more nasty you know very ceo type person you know step, doesn't matter a dragon lady wanted you know literally want to step on some necks you know and stuff like that lorana is just tough and you know she uh was raised in a soft environment and Got out and saw the world and, and saw it wasn't how she thought it was. And then she's adapted to it. And it's real. And she's really risen to the occasion. In this book, she really, you know, especially at first, grows. She grows so much and she becomes such a, maybe my favorite character this time around when I'm reading it. I was always a big Tasselhoff and Flint fan, you know, because they're, you know, in old Japanese movies, like I don't know necessarily in the Kira Kurosawa movies, I, I think he had this sometimes. I hear he makes mad films. When they do, they're about a samurai. Yeah. Um, 
he he would have a, a, a two characters, one tall and thin, one short and fat, and they were the comic relief. Now that is literally what's in Star Wars, like and Laurel and Hardy, yeah, and George. Well, I mean, it's in these movies and George Lucas especially, you know. C-3PO and R2-D2 are that mm-hmm. And they are a more every man's point of view Even though they're not men They are more They have no superpowers They have nothing at stake here So you know You really get into that um, And that's what uh, That's what Flint and Tasselhoff are in this story Even though one of them's short and thin The other one's short and hefty You know Husky Stout Remember the husky pants? You, yeah you, do I ever uh. They didn't have sizes. It was just boys husky. And your mom making you try them on. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Basically assaulting you (laughs) to make sure. This is a fat kid's store. (laughs) Okay, Um, this has nothing to do with the story. (laughs) I know, but that's this is kind of the, this is brand. I'm trying to run my bits here. This is brand on brand for Pillow Fort uh, Network. Anyway, back to the story. Um, Lord Amothus, who is the... I guess he's the guy in charge of the city. I don't know if he's the mayor, um, but he's definitely the guy in charge of the city of Palanthus. And he reads the, the communique that's from uh, Gunther. Um, well, he wouldn't read it at first. And then uh, Lorana says, um, cause Lord Amothus asked her to, to take, you know, to take place in their festivities because they still think, that you know that this is the end that they've won and all that stuff and Laurent and all them know better but uh, he keeps on talking to her and she says quote in reference to his take part in our festivities I would please to Lord if any of us are here in three weeks Laurent said clenching her hands tightly beneath the table in an effort to remain calm Lord Amothus blinked then smiled indulgently certainly the dragon armies well to continue reading I am truly grieved to hear of the loss of so many of our our knighthood. Let us find comfort in the knowledge that they died victorious, fighting this great evil that darkens our lands. I feel an even greater personal grief in the loss of three of our finest leaders, Derek Crownguard, Knight of the Rose, that's debatable, Alfred Markennan, Knight of the Sword, and Stern Brightblade, Knight of the Crown. The Lord turned to Lorana. Brightblade, he was your close friend, I believe, my dear. Yes, my lord, Lorana murmured, lowering her head, letting her golden hair fall forward to hide the anguish in her eyes. It had been only a short time since they had buried Sturm in the chamber of Paladin beneath the ruins of the High Claris Tower. I'm sorry, it wasn't, um, it was the High Claris Tower. I was thinking that I had gotten that wrong. For a second, I thought I called it Pax Tharkas, but I didn't. Um, then he continues to read. Um, Astenis actually tells him, to, I love Astenis. Cut through the bullshit. Let's just get it. Get on with it. You know he's a he's at first you don't like him, but then he is he's he's the guy. Come come on, come on. Let's let's get this on the road. You know what I mean? Like I, I got to be home writing. I can't be doing this bullshit. You know, say what you got to say and get it over with. You know, he's a really cool character. I like him in that. Um, so he tells Amothus to get on with it. Quote, certainly, Astenis, the Lord said, flushing. He began to read again hurriedly. This tragedy leads the knights in unusual circumstances. First, the knighthood is now made up of, as I understand, primarily knights of the crown, the lowest order of knights. This means that while all have passed their tests and won their shields, they are, however, young and inexperienced. But they've been in battle. Um, for most, this was their first battle. It also leaves us without any suitable commander since, according to the measure, there must be a representative from each of the orders of knights in command. 
Lorana could hear the faint jingle of armor and the rattle of swords as the nice presence shifted uncomfortably. They were temporary leaders under this que- until this question of command could be settled. Closing her eyes, Lorana sighed. Please, Gunther, she, she thought. Let your choice be a wise one. So many have died because of political man- maneuvering. Let this be an end to it. Therefore, I point the back to the, to the letter. Therefore, I point to fill the position of leadership of the Knights of Salamnia. Lorana, I am not saying her full elven name. It is a mouthful. Of the Royal House of Quaunesti. The Lord paused a moment, as if uncertain he had read correctly. Lorana's eyes opened wide as he stared at him, and sh- as she stared at him in shocked disbelief. But she was not more shark- shocked than the knights themselves. Um, one of uh, Sir Patrick, who is more along the lines of the old style of knights, cannot accept it. He does not like what he's hearing. Which is, and Sir Markham, he'd be like a slimy. Yeah, we're equal. You know, he'd be that kind of guy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're equal. You're absolutely every, every bit as good as I am. He doesn't really believe it, but he's going to go along with it because he wants to be seen as that way. Real slimy bastard. I still kind of like him, though. Um, Lorana reacts, though. Quote, Lorana sat very still. For a moment, she was so filled with anger, she thought she might stalk it out of the room. Vision swam before her eyes. Lord Alfred's headless corpse. Poor Derek dying in his madness. Sturm's peace, peace-filled, lifeless eyes. The body of the knights who had died in the tower laid out in a row. And now she was in command. An elf made from the royal household. Not even old enough by elven standards to be free of her father's house. A spoiled little girl who had run away from her home to chase after, quote-unquote, her childhood sweetheart, Tannis Half-Elven. That spoiled little girl had grown up. Fear, pain, great loss, great sorrow. She knew knew that in some way she was older than her father now that's absolutely true the elves are as we've discussed before very insular and while still very powerful and we've discussed this before i have in this week we discussed it yesterday on the show i've dove into tolkien over the past week man the elves of crean are not the elves of middle earth the elves of middle earth are angelic and super powerful they are a match and more for you know most of your you know, a common rank and file elf could at least keep Sauron off of him for a second. You know what I mean? And, and at least, you know, give him a little bit of a fight before he went down. Especially if he got mad and he just unveiled what he actually is. The skin they wear is actually just a, it's a skin. It's not what they actually are. The elves in Crean are that. They're long-lived. They're powerful. They're, you know, but they're just like, I hate to say this because, I hope that Margaret Watson Tracy Hemp never listened to this because I would never presume to insult their writing because I love it. It's one of my favorite things. But here I go insulting. <laughs> no, their it's writing. not insult. I mean, more saying that in this story, the elves are kind of like long lived humans who have powerful nations and things like that. Maybe more. Well, not maybe very definitely more adept at magic and um, very powerful in their own right. But they are not the elves of Middle Earth. I think that was on purpose, though. It was probably because they needed to ratchet up. It's actually a good choice. They needed to ratchet up the the threats and stuff like that. You would never see pretty much the elves of Middle Earth ruffled. You know, Gladriel would say things, but she never really got upset, you know. Um, anyway, uh, Sir Patrick stands up and says, I cannot accept this. Um, Sir Markham takes it more in stride. Quote, 
Oh, really, Sir Pat? Oh, really, Patrick? Sir Markham laughed. He was a carefree, easygoing man, a startling contrast to the stern and serious Patrick. Hair on your chest doesn't make you a general. Relax. It's politics. Gunther has made a wide move. And it is. It is a wise move. Lorana flushed, knowing he was right. She was a safe choice until Gunther had time to rebuild the knighthood and entrench himself firmly as leader. But there is no precedent for this, Patrick continued to argue, avoiding Lorana's eyes. I'm certain that according to the measure, women are not permitted in the knighthood. He was interrupted. You are wrong. Uh, Astana said flatly Who of course would know And there is precedent In the third dragon war A young woman was accepted Into the knighthood Following the deaths Of her father and her brothers She rose to knight of the sword And died honorably in battle Mourned by her brethren Brethren no one spoke. Lord Amothus appeared extremely embarrassed. He'd almost sunk beneath the table at Sir Markham's reference to hairy chests. God doesn't seem very masculine. <laughs> Astena stared coldly at Sir Patrick. Sir Markham toyed with his wine glass, glancing once at Laurent and smiling. After a brief internal struggle, visible in his face, Sir Patrick sat back down, scowling. Sir Markham raised his glass to our commander. Um, it is an honor, but Astena sees right through it. Um, we all like Sir Gunther. I like Sir Gunther. I thought he was a great guy, but he is playing politics with this. He knows if he appoints somebody higher in the in the knighthood, he's going to have to go through that whole bullshit again, where there's struggle to who's in control of the knighthood. He is the best man to control the knighthood. He's wise. He's uh, tolerant. He's all these things, and he's, he's an excellent warrior. He's got wisdom on. I mean, he's got the wisdom of years on his side. Let's say, um, and he sees the long game. He does and doesn't live strictly according to the code and the measure. He just applies it to real world situations. However, he is kind of throwing Lorana to the wolves here. And the first one who sees it, of course, is Astinus, because as Astinus, Astinus, he's, of course, has lived as long as Kryn has been a planet. And he is more wise than any human being could ever possibly be. Quote, Yes, Serana, said Astinus. They have left you to pick up the pieces. She looked up startled, frightened of this strange man who spoke her thoughts. I didn't want this, she murmured through lips that felt numb. I don't believe any of us were sitting around praying for a war, Astinus remarked caustically. But war has come, and now you must do what you can to win it. He rose to his feet. The Lord of Palanthus, the generals, and the knights stood up respectfully. Lorana main seated her eyes on her hands. She felt Astinus staring at her, and she stubbornly froze to look at him. Um... He also informs her that she is not only the commander of the knights, she now can, can commands the uh, forces of Palanthus, which are considerable, uh, more or less city watch, but they are trained and they're not bad. You know, they're, they're not knights of Salamnia, but they wouldn't shame themselves in the field of battle. I'm quite sure. Um, she asks, um, Lauren has, has asked, and this is leaving, asked him two questions. She said, where are the dragon armies? And he says, basically, you know as well as I do where they are. Because he knows she already knows. They're coming. Um, um, then she asks about Tannis. And he gives a very cryptic answer, but something that's pretty on point. Quote, put it out of your thoughts. What do you mean? Lorana felt chilled by the man's frost-rhymed voice. I do not predict the future. I see only the present as it becomes the past. I, thus I have seen it in, since time began. I have seen love that, through its willingness to sacrifice everything, brought hope to the world. Remember our conversation about love. What can it do? I have seen love that I've seen love that tried to overcome pride and lust for power, but failed. The world is darker for its failure, but it it is only as a cloud dims the sun. The sun, the love still remains. Finally placed 
Wait, sorry. Finally, I've seen love lost in darkness. Love misplaced, understood, misunderstood because the lover did not know his or her own heart. You speak in riddles, Laura, said angrily. Do I? Asked as asked, he bowed. Farewell, Lorana. My advice to you is concentrating on your duty. The historian walked out the door. It's pretty. He's a. Uh, that's a mic drop moment because he knows what he's talking about. But he's basically telling her, um, "Don't waste your time on that guy because he's seeing the present." And Tannis, you know, he his. It, we know his loyalties are with his friends and stuff like that, but he, he was split for a minute. Like he is in love with Kitty Ara. He, you know, shacked up with her for however long and lied to her about being in the dragon army and stuff. Kitty Ara doesn't probably knows he's lying, but doesn't want to accept it because as I said, with a narcissist, a narcissist loves somebody who loves them because it gives them the feeling of that. They might actually feel love, even though they actually don't. Um, And then at the end, this is still up in up in up in the air whether she will actually, you know, accept this. She doesn't have to accept the the what they're offering her, basically appointing her to do. But she does. Quote, turning around to face the Lord of Palanthus and his generals, Lorana threw back her head, her golden hair glinting in the light of the candles. They always make her seem so, you know, majestic. And she is. I will take the leadership of the army, she said in a voice nearly as cold as the void in her soul. She's now Tannis has lost her. She knows that uh, he's with Kitty or at least had been. So um, then we, again, we need a little bit of lightening up of this. So who do we clash to? Flint and Tasseloff. And it's a good scene here. Flint is describing stonework to Tasseloff, who, of course, could not be less interested. You know, so. Uh, well, My body is ready. <laughs> quote. Now, this is stonework, stated Flint in satisfaction, stamping on the battlements of the old city, beneath, wall, old city wall beneath his feet. Dwarves built this, no doubt about it. Look at how each stone is cut with careful precision to fit perfectly within the wall. No two quite alike. Fascinating, said Tasshoff, yawning. Did, did dwarves build the tower that... Don't remind me, Flint snapped, and dwarves did not build the tower of high sorcery. They were built by the wizards themselves who created them from the very bones of the world, raising up the rocks up out of the soil with their magic. That's wonderful, breathed Taz, waking up. I wish I could have been there. How... It's nothing, continued the dwarf loudly, glaring at Taz. He's obviously not picking up that Flint admires good stonework, but not magic stonework. Compared to the work of the dwarven rock masons who spent centuries perfecting their art. Now look at this stone. See the texture of the chisel marks. Here comes Lorana, Tess said thankfully, glad to end his lesson in dwarven architecture. <laughs> it's just... Um, then as she's coming... It's probably like whenever um, we talk about disc golf to people that don't... Sure. I mean, on. anything that they're not aware of. Yeah. They, you cannot convey your passion until they feel said passion. And sometimes you can't because people just aren't going to be interested in things. Like I try to talk to my brothers and uh, people I've known all my life about punk rock music, how much I love it. And they they just don't get it. You know, they, they, they like some of it, sure, but they're just not into it like I am. And I can't even explain fully why I'm so into it. You know, it's just or, you know, powerlifting or whatever. You know, it's just not something that they hold much truck with, you know, so. Um, but then they see Lorana coming and here we have a good moment. Uh, Flint, uh, 
Flint seeing Lorana come, and it's a nice little passage. Quote, Flint quit peering at the rock wall to watch Lorana walk toward them from a great dark hallway which opened onto the battlement. She was dressed once more in the army she had worn at the High Clarus Tower. The blood had been cleaned off the gold-decorated steel breastplate the dents repaired. Her long, honey-colored fair hair flowed from beneath her red-plumed helm, gleaming in Salinari's light. She walked slowly, her eyes on the eastern horizon, where the, mar- where the mountains were dark shadows against the starry sky. The moonlight touched her face as well. Looking at her, Flint sighed. Um, he remarks that she's changed, that she's grown up a lot, and it's her sorrow. Um, Tasselhoff remarks, quote, She's still not over Sturm's death. It's only been a week, Tess said. His impish, impish kinder face, usually, unusually serious and thoughtful. Sturm's death hit Tasselhoff really hard, too. I mean, they weren't the best of friends, but they had been companions for years, and he loved Sturm, and Sturm loved him in his way, you know, even though they could not have been more opposite in the way they seen uh, saw the world. One of them was melancholy and serious about his duty. One of them is happy-go-lucky and thinks everything is wonderful, and let's, you know, let's go see the world, and all these things are great. Even the terrible things are great in their way, you know, so that's why we all love him. He's... I would guarantee that most people who listen to this, Tassoff is your favorite character. He's, he might be mine. So He's definitely mine. Um, but Flint also disagrees. He agrees, but also disagrees. Quote, it's not just that the old dwarf shook his head. It had something to do with that meeting she had with Kitiara up on the wall of the High Clarice Tower. It was something Kitiara did or said, blast her. The dwarf snapped viciously. I never did trust her, even in the old days. I didn't surprise me. It didn't surprise me to see her in the getup of Dragon High Lord. I'd give a mountain of steel coins to know what she said to Lorana that snuffed the light right out of her right out of her she was like a ghost when we brought her down from the wall after kitiara and her blue dragon left i'll bet my beard muttered the dwarf that had something to do with tennis um he's right of course then we get a insight of Tasselhoff into kitiara how he feels about her quote i can't believe kitiara is a dragon high lord she always was always taz groped for words well fun Fun, said Flint, his brows contracting. Maybe, but cold and selfish, too. Oh, she was charming enough when she wanted to be. Flint's voice sank to a whisper. Lorana was getting close enough to hear. Tannis never did see it. He always believed there was more to Kittyara beneath the surface. He thought he alone knew her, that she covered herself with a hard shell to conceal her tender heart. Ha, she had as much heart as these stones. Flint, not a fan of Kittyara. Um, then... Uh, Lorana approaches in to talk about that she's been put in command. Um, she just says it very simply. I'm commander of the army, she said. Um, Taz, of course, was going to congratulate her. Um, but uh, Lorana's not having any of it. Quote, there is nothing to cr- congratulate me about, Lorana said bitterly. What do I command? A handful of knights stuck in a ruined bastion miles away in the Min- Vingard Mountains and a thousand men who stand upon the walls of the city. She clenched her gloved fist, her eyes on the eastern sky that was beginning to show the faintest glimmer of morning light. We should be out of there. Now, what? We should be out of there. I guess she's saying the uh, the uh, the High Clarice Tower. While the Dragon Army is still scattered and trying to regroup, we could defeat them easily. But no, we dare not go out on the plains, not even with the Dragon Lances. For what good are they against dragons in flight? If we had a Dragon Orb, she fell silent for a moment, then drew a deep breath. Her face hardened. Well, we don't. It's no use thinking about it. So we'll stand here on the battlements of Palanthus and wait for death. Pretty grim prognostication from an elf. Um... Flint tries to comfort her, of course, because he's grandfather. Quote, now the Ron of Flint remonstrated. 
clearing his throat gruffly. Perhaps things aren't that dark. There are good solid walls around the city. A thousand men can hold it easily. The gnomes with their catapults guard the harbor. The knights guard the only pass through the Vanguard Mountains, and we've sent men to reinforce them. And we do have the dragon lances, a few at any rate, and Gunther sent word more are on the way. So we can't attack dragons in flight. They'll think twice about flying over the walls. That isn't enough, Flint, Lorana sighed. Oh, sure, we may hold the dragon armies for a week or two weeks or maybe even a month. But then what? What happens to us when they control the land around us? All we can do against the dragons is shut ourselves up in safe little havens. Soon this world will be nothing but tiny islands of light surrounded by vast oceans of darkness. And then one by one, the darkness will engulf us all. She's absolutely correct. Um, then... Uh, Flint tries to get her to go. He sees that she's really tired, tries to get her to go lay down in his best grandfather voice saying, you know, ask her how long it's been since she slept. Um, You know, he really, he's a very caring, you know, he's gruff and all that stuff, but he's like, he's like that grandfather who you thought was mean, but when you get older, you saw he was very sweet deep down. I really love Flint in this book, especially. Um, And we're going to get into uh, him later. So, Um, Lorana says, uh, then she tells him that what's while she's up there after Flint tells her to go to, uh, go turn in quote. I can't, Lorana said, rubbing her eyes. The thought of sleep suddenly made her realize how exhausted she was. I came to tell you, we received reports that dragons were seen flying westward, westward over the city of Calaman. That's the worst possible news they could receive. They're heading this direction. Then Taz said, visualizing a map in his, visualizing a map in his head. Whose reports, asked the dwarf suspiciously, the Griffins. Now, don't scowl like that, Lorana smiled slightly to the sight of the dwarf's disgust. The Griffins have been a vast help to us. If the elves contribute nothing more to this war than the Griffins, they will have already done a great deal. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to get into the next part is extremely important. I'm trying to do the right lead in. Um, then the, the people of Palanthus start to um, panic um, because they've heard the news too the, the the rumor is taken and they're all rushing into the streets and Laurent is like well she takes men down from the wall like get those people back in their homes you know and we gotta you know control this or else you know it's bad enough that we're outnumbered and all these things but now we've got a panicked city on our hands that's not going to do us any good so she really does a good job of taking command and starts to tell them um And nothing really helps, but then um, Taz, whose eyes apparently are as sharp as his ears, uh, gives him more bad news. Quote, Taz, standing on a block of stone, staring out over the wall, shook his head. It doesn't matter, he whispered in in despair. Flint, look. The dwarf climbed hurriedly up to stand beside his friend. Already men were pointing and shouting, grabbing bows and spears. Here and there, the barbed silver point of a dragon lance could be seen glinting in the torchlight. How many? Flint asked, squinting. Ten, Taz answered slowly. Two flights. Big dragons, too. Maybe the red ones like we saw in Tarsus. I can't see their color against the dawn's light, but I can see riders on them. Maybe a high lord. Maybe Kittyara. Gee, Tess said, stuck by a sudden thought. I hope I get to talk to her this time. It must be interesting being a high lord. His words were lost in the sound of bells ringing from towers all over the city. The people in the streets stared up the walls where the soldiers were pointing him, exclaiming. 
Far below them, Taz could see Lorana emerge from the Lord's palace, followed by the Lord himself and two of his generals. The kinder could tell from the set of her shoulders that Lorana was furious. She gestured at the bells, apparently warning them, wanting them silenced, but it was too late. People of Palanthus went wild with terror, and most of the inexperienced soldiers were in nearly as bad a state as the civilians. The sounds of shrieks and wails and hoarse calls rose up into the air. Grim memories of Tarsus came back to Taz, people trampling to death in the streets, houses exploding in flames. Remember the um, the siege of Tarsus with the dragons? That was one of the most awful events in all these books, and it, it was one of the best written because it was an act, a giant action sequence, um, and it would have been great on film. So um, hopefully, again, I think one day that will happen. Sure, I mean it's it's unavoidable. I mean, uh, I think uh, the werewolf guy from True Blood. Yeah, I think he's trying to get it. To what is his name? Joe something? Manangiello, the yes. beautiful man. Yeah, he, he was. Gonna, he wants to play Sturm. Yeah, and he's a big D and D guy. Who who would? I think he'd be a good choice for that. Um, you know, who's going to be um, Tesselhoff. Who? Wait for it. Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Flint, it's out of control. <laughs> that uh, was Regis. <laughs> Regis would have been great though. Paul Giamatti, Regis. What's the fucking difference? Anyway, the chin. Uh, <laughs> We continue, quote, the kinder turned around slowly. I guess I don't want to talk to Kitty Ari, he said softly, brushing his hand across his eyes as he watched the dragons fly closer and closer. I don't want to know what it's like being a high lord because it must be sad and dark and horrible. Wait. Taz stared eastward. He couldn't believe his eyes, so he leaned far out, perilously close to falling over the edge of the wall. Flint, he shouted, waving his arms. What is it? Flint snapped, catching hold of Taz by the belt of his blue leggings. The dwarf hauled the excited kinder back in, back in with a jerk. It's like in Park's Pax Tharkas, Taz babbled, babbled incoherently, like Huma's tomb, like Fizban said. They're here. They've come. Who's here? Flint roared in exasperation, jumping up and down in excitement, his pounces, his pouches bouncing around wildly. Taz turned without answering and dashed off, leaving the door fuming on the stairs, calling out, Who's here, you rattle brain? Lorana shouted Taz's shrill voice, splitting the early morning air like a slightly off-key trumpet. That's a pretty good description. Lorana, they've come. They're here, like Fizban said. Lorana. Cursing the kinder beneath his breath, Flint stared back out to the east. Then, glancing around swiftly, I always love this part, the dwarf slipped a hand in, inside a vest pocket. Hurriedly, he drew out a pair of glasses and, looking around again to make certain no one was watching him, he slipped them on. He, does, he doesn't wear glasses. He's not going to admit that. He's not old. Now he can make out what had been nothing more than a haze of pink light broken by the darker, pointed masses of the mountain range. The dwarf drew a, drew a deep, trembling breath, his eyes dim with tears. Quickly, he snatches the gla glasses off his nose and put them back in their case, slipping them back into his pocket. But he'd worn the glasses just long enough to see the dawn touch the wings of dragons with the pink light, pink glinting off silver. Put your weapons down, lads, Flint said to the men around him, mopping his eyes with one of the candor's handkerchiefs. Praise be to Reorks. Now we have a chance. Now we have a chance. Can you guess what has happened? I'm trying to think of something funny, but I can't. The good dragons have finally entered the war and they showed up. You know, everybody thought they were the evil dragons from the dragon armies or not. They're, um, you know, big silver dragons. I think there's a couple gold, a big bronze dragon. We'll get into a great uh, passage coming up of. Uh, Taz and Flint trying to get on a big bronze dragon's back while he's trying to help them and be patient. Um, I love things from the dragon's point of view, usually. Um, as we said before, the dragons in most other things are not intelligent. At least they're not, you know, 
they can't converse with you and all these things. The dragons in Dragonlance are are sentient and intelligent and um you know, I don't think they would fare well against the dragons from uh, from uh, Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, the Balerian, the Black Dread himself was, you know, he was bigger than Drogon and, you know, the dragons and Kryn just aren't that big. I mean, they there some of them are, but you know, also later on, uh, I don't know if it be this episode, there is a, a, another appearance by one Cyan Bloodbane, which is a really cool part. Um, also a great name. Yeah, it was. And uh, a really cool character, this evil, gigantic green, green dragon who was apparently a prodigy. He was just this, greens don't get that big, and he was m- bigger than a lot of reds. He was just this, you know, green dragon on steroids. So um, there might actually be dragon steroids. I mean, and it's uh, stranger things have happened in that world. So, um and then we uh, go into the next chapter, and the as the dragons arrive in Palanthus, the good dragons. Quote, As the silver dragons settled to the ground on the outskirts of the great city of Palanthus, their wings filled the morning sky with a blinding radiance. The, peop- the people crowded the walls to stare out un- uneasily at the beautiful, magnificent creatures. Um, they're all freaked out. They Remember, dragons in general in this world were seen as myths, the stories told to children, they never really existed. You know, for a for a world that has lots of magical creatures and terrifying things and wondrous things, I never quite got it why dragons were seen as something that's not real, you know. Didn't, didn't quite make sense to me. I mean, I know it's part of the narrative, you know, because then when they come back, everybody's jazzed and, you know, or horrified or whatever, what have you. It depends on which side of the fence you're standing and which dragon you're fo- looking at, of course. But, um you know, these people are uneasy. I mean, um, then, however, um, Lorana goes out to talk to him. Um, and her example, again, uh, calms everybody down. Quote, it wasn't until Lorana herself walked out of the city gates and straight into the arms of a man who had been riding one of the beautiful silver dragons that the people began to think that there might be something to this children's story after all. Uh, I like this. Um, this kind of from the people's point of view, jostling and shoving, the people leaned over the wall, asking questions and listening to the wrong answers. Out in the valley, the dragons slowly fanned their wings to keep their circulation going in the chill morning. As Lorana embraced the man, another person climbed down off one of the dragons, a woman whose silk hair gleamed as silver as the dragon's wings. Lorana embraced this woman, too. Then, to the wonder of the people, Astinus led three, the three of them straight to the great library, where they, admitted, where they were admitted by aesthetics. The huge door shut behind them. Um... Then we get a something completely from Estenis' point of view. It's it's in his writings. Um, this is actually an excerpt from the Dragonlance Chronicles who Astenis wrote. Uh, quote, the following is an excerpt from the Chronicles, a history of Crean as recorded by Astenis of Palanthus. It can be found under the heading, The Oath of the Dragons. Um, I'm just going to read you a brief part of this and try to give you a summation because it's pretty long. Uh, it's very interesting, though, and I will read passages as they're told to Astinus. I kind of wish it would be, had been from um, Gilthanus's and Silvara's point of view. Um, but it's a powerful plot device to have it told to somebody and, you know, an outside observer, I guess. Quote, as I, Astinus, write these words, I look on the face of the elf lord, Gilthanus, younger, sor- younger son of Solastarin, speaker of the sons, lord of the Quelinesti. Gilthanus' face is very much like his sister, Lorana's face, and not just in family resemblance. Both have the delicate features and ageless quality of all elves, but these two are different. Both faces are marked with a sorrow not to be seen on the faces of elves living on Corinne. I disagree with that part. I remember what I was going to say. 
if he was if he's aware of Taldus, which he should be, he should know that elves there live a pretty some of them live a pretty horrid existence. Um, the plains elves have a life that's like the Mongols; they have a life of nothing but horseback fighting and violence. Um, then you have the Chasai who live in, in jungles and they are constantly assailed by these things called Yagol, which are uh, one of the oldest creatures in Dragonlance is a thing called a mind flare. It's actually what they based uh, the creature in Stranger Things on. Mind flare? Yes. It, it's, uh, well, we can actually punch up a picture of that. I brought my trusty, dusty 16 um, inch fucking. Yes. <laughs> Why are you reading off of your phone instead of that? Well, I mean, because I needed this for other things, too. Okay. Um, mind flayers are uh, really, they, they have, a, have a head of a squid, basically, and are... Um, Squids are terrifying. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's part of the point. I mean, here's a couple good pictures. There's a decent, really good picture. Um, this thing is kind of slow. It's being gay. Oh, Lord. And here's a mind flare. That's a good picture. There's actually an even better one. This one I like even better. Oh, yeah. They're from another plane of existence. Um, and what they do is their tentacles go into your head. And they sometimes will feed on your brain. They eat brains. Um, but they also use mental blasts to control people. Um, and when we talk about when we do uh, the Dark Elf trilogy later, there's a whole giant part of those dealing with mind flayers which is one of the best parts of the book again we'll get into dritz he's coming everybody who is at least going to be a fan of this a minor fan of the show i get about 25 plays a week maybe so maybe 25 fans and listeners but we are definitely going to get into the dark elf trilogy but anyway um back to the original point i know i wander uh he was just saying that uh the elves of kryn and i think he means ancelon are not marked by this much suffering. And, but he continues, quote, although I fear that before this war is ended, many elves will have the same look. And perhaps this is not a bad thing, for it seems that finally the elves are learning they are part of this world, not above it. So, um, then, Gilthanus and Silvara tell their tale. They, were, they went looking, as we all know, Silvara is a, is a silver dragon herself. She is sister to the dragon that fell in love with Huma. Asked us some remarks on that because he knew Huma and that dragon as well. And they're, they had a love that was tragic, but also both returned. Gilthanus does not return. So he returns so far as love, but he feels betrayed by her and he doesn't know what to do with it. You know, um, it's a creature. You know, no matter how powerful and majestic, it's still a creature. So he probably thinks what his father will think, especially what his jag off of a brother is going to think Lorana loves Silver Silvara so she would you know completely approve you know but uh, Gilthanus is still stuck in that very much that elven mindset where even dragons may be may be somewhat beneath them which is an odd thing to think because they're the most powerful beings on this planet other than the gods themselves so um Savara then tells him, you know, she gave him the power. She gave Theros Ironfeld, of course, the ability to forge dragon lances. We all know in but remember the Council of Whitestone where uh, Theros Ironfeld, remember the big black blacksmith, that awesome 
awesome character. Like he's a yeah. big, big giant of a man. He's got a silver arm, and he throws one of the dragon lances in and breaks that the, the white stone to tell him that hey, we can do this now. We've got a chance. Yeah, you know, this is before, of course, the silver dragons have, or even any of the dragons have returned. Um, but the reason they have not returned yet, and we're and we're getting into this now, is there? It's a thing called the oath. And uh, quote. When this is from Solar's point of view, quote, when Takesis, the queen of darkness and her evil dragons were banished, the good dragons left the land to maintain the balance between good and evil. May, remember, we talked about how much Kryn is based on balance. Made of the world, we returned to the world, sleeping in ages sleep. We would have remained asleep in a world of dreams, but then came the cataclysm, and Takesis found her way back into the world again. Long as she planned for this return, should fate give it to her, and she was prepared. Before Paladin was aware of her, Takesis woke the evil dragons from their sleep and ordered them to slip into the deep and secret place of the world and steal the eggs of the good dragons who slept on unaware. Dragons, even though they are like reptiles in some ways are not reptiles they're magical creatures and they love their children as much as anybody any thinking being would love their children so their eggs are their children so of course techesis threatens them saying if you don't stay out of this we're going to kill all your kids you know pretty techesis kitty are a thing to do I, th- I think that they have a lot of you know common ground that's one of the reasons kitty are such so high up in the dragon armies because techesis can see a lot of her Selfish, selfishness and narcissism in Kitty R and really likes her. So, um, and they agreed. We couldn't. They they couldn't risk their children. Um, then they were captured outside of sanction, Gilthanus and uh, Silvara, and taken by the dragon high lord Ariacus. This is one thing I've been waiting for. Ariacus is an awesome character. He is this giant of a dude and he's like he's human of course but he's very he's almost godlike he's he's tall black hair like these you know just massive you know, mountain of muscle he's just a giant dude and he can they describe some of the things he can do he can throw a lance all the way through a horse he can you know he, he's just why would you do that he's just that kind of guy <laughs> he's such a badass that he uh, that a goddess, a literal goddess, falls in love with him. The goddess is Aboam, who's the goddess of the of the storm. She's like Tekesis' daughter, and they have a child together named Ariacan Ariacus, who, who comes later, who's almost as powerful, much not smarter than his dad, but can see the long game better. We'll get introduced to him later. Uh, if we keep doing Dragonlance books, I hope we do. Um, we're going to take a little break after this series, and then... Um, do something else, but then we'll come back to it. Um, they they get taken to um, then they get taken to a place called Naraka and to a to a temple of Tachesis. Um They were tortured, of course. Gelthanus tells them, you know, uh, he can't. Um, he can't relay that. He can't describe it. And I don't think they, it, it, they still had to flirt with a little bit of this being a young adult book. So I don't think they could put a lot of stuff in there. Um, but they escaped. Um, and here's part of their tale. Quote, finally, with help, we escaped. We were in sanction itself, a hideous town built in the valley formed by the volcanoes, the Lords of Doom. That's a great 
That's a great name for some volcanoes. <laughs> that's a tremendous name. That's, These, that's our 80s wrestling It name. is. It's really. These mountains tower over all. Their foul smoke corrupts the air. The buildings are all new and modern, constructed with the blood of slaves. Built on the sides of mountains is a temple to Tachesis, the, the Dark Queen. The dragon eggs are held deep within the heart of the volcanoes. It was here, in the temple of the Dark Queen, that Silvara and I made our way. Can I describe the temple except to say it is a building of darkness and of flame? Tall pillars called out of the burning, carved out of the burning rocks soar into the sulfurous caverns. By secret ways known only to the priests of Tachesis themselves, we traveled descending lower and lower. You ask who helped us? I cannot say, for our life would be forfeit. I, never, I don't think I've ever figured out who that actually was. I'll only add that some god must have been watching over us. Um, then they come to an altar. Um... And um, they found some of the dragon eggs. Um, they had a plan. They were going to take them out. But then uh, something awful happens. Um, hold on one second. I'm trying to... We came to a quote here. Gilthanus continues. Quote, we came to a changer and found there not eggs, nothing but the shells scattered, broken. Silvara cried out in anger, and I fear we might be discovered. Neither of us knew what this portended, but we both felt a chill in our blood. Not even the heat of the volcano could warm. Um, Silvara at this point, of course, breaks down. She probably had brothers and sisters among this, among the eggs, you know. So she's lost, you know, imagine how you would feel losing a, a, an infant, especially a brother and sister, to something, and especially something that's going to happen, that's going to be told here in a second, that is truly awful. So um, then they hear magical chanting in one of the rooms, and then they go in to find out what's happening, and then we get into a part that I've highlighted. Um, quote, inside a cavern room at the bottom of the volcano stands an altar to Tachesis. What it may have been carved to represent, I could not tell, for it was so carved with green blood, covered with green blood and black slime that it seemed a horrid growth springing from the rock. That's a pretty hideous description. Around the altar were robed figures, dark clerics of Tachesis and magic users wearing the black robes. Silvara and I watched in awe as a black-robed cleric brought forth a shining golden dragon egg and placed it upon that foul altar. Joining hands, the black-robed magic users and the dark clerics began to, began to chant. Their words burned, their mind, burned the mind. Silvara and I clung to each other, fearing we would be driven mad by the evil we could feel but could not understand. And then... Then the golden egg upon the altar began to darken. As we watched, it turned to a hideous green and then to black. Savar began to tremble. The blackened egg upon the altar cracked open, and a larva-like creature emerged from the shell. It was loathsome and corrupt to look upon, and I wretched at the sight. My only thought was to flee this horror, but Silvara realized what was happening, and she refused to leave. Together, we watched as the larva split its slime-covered skin, and from its, from its body came the evil forms of draconians. Um... What, you know, this is the most hideous thing of all. The draconians they've been facing this entire time. And we've discussed this, but, you know, he's really driven home now are good dragons. There are good dragons that have been perverted by evil, both, both magic and a blending of magic and clerical magic, which are two completely different things in this world. Um, they're a perversion, such a perversion of something that is one of the best good things in the world. You know, as, as we remember the... From the gold dragons, you get Arax. You know, from the silver dragons, you get Sivax. From the copper dragons, you get Capax. You get the Boz or bronze dragons. The, uh, you know, these are these are all the and I and I always like to think the Draconians drink 
so much because they are so disgusted by their own nature. Deep down, they know actually they actually know what they are, you know, but they're perverting something that is completely opposite of, of what of what they are meant to be, you know. So, I mean, that's just a supposition on my point, you know, thinking that, you know, I, I hate myself so much. I mean, I remember I drank because I hated myself so much. So uh, imagine being a creature that was meant to be this big majestic thing that is the ultimate expression of power on this planet. And you were turned into something that is hideous and evil and all these things and meant and used to hurt people. I would probably think that in every draconian deep down, there's another voice telling them not to do these things. You know, as a matter of fact, that does happen later. Some draconians uh, after the war run off into like the, the mountains or something and rediscover their good nature and uh, breed true. They start having children of their own who are good draconians, you know, and then they, at one point they there's a dragon army or something later on and they come down the mountains and crush this army like on the on the part of the good good guys. And then they in, you know, perfect military fashion you know like spartans marching out and just crushing somebody and then they kind of bow to people and then walk away saying well we're here to help you now so it's a good part of the book um we'll get into that book later um but now uh silvara told them what happened before uh, at first some dragons didn't want to believe her thinking she was just trying to get you know them on, on the side of good and that was a you know i never got that part really i, I would think the dragons would be able to sense something like that like you know, she's absolutely right. We knew this was happening all along, but we didn't. We didn't have proof, and you know, we couldn't take the chance. So now they know. Um, and uh, here we come to Gelfinus continuing quote: "The good dragons have come to aid us now. They are flying to all parts of the land, offering their help. They have returned the monument of the dragon." Return to the Monument of the Dragon to aid in forging the Dragon Lances just as they came to human's aid long ago. And they have brought with them the greater lances that can be mounted on the dragons themselves, as we saw in the paintings. Now we may ride into the battle and challenge the Dragon High Lords in the sky. That's fucking awesome. I mean, it's... Uh <laughs> it's... You know, we've talked before that, that at the end of Dragons of Winter Night is so aptly named because everything went to hell. They had no, they had no hope. They, you know, remember the uh, the the ship crash in the Blood Sea of Istar with Tannis and them, and we still don't know what's going to happen to them. We won't happen to them. We'll find out what happens to them until next week. So we're dealing with Lorana and what's going on now. But uh you know, it's just not a lot of hope. And even at the beginning of the book, there wasn't very much hope. But then the dragons show up and they are literally the embodiment of hope. So, you know, it is a spring dawning with the good dragons showing up. Um, uh, Lorana, after all this, is, uh, is making her battle plan. Um, I actually like the fact that they describe her battle plan. Uh, and she's actually a, an extremely good general. Like, she has a good battle mind. Quote, Lorana sat late at night, writing up her orders for the morrow. Only a day had passed since the arrival of Gelfinus and the Silver Dragons, but already, already her plans for pressing the beleaguered enemy were taking shape. Within a few days more, the, she would lead flights of dragons with mounted riders, wheeling the new dragon lances into battle. She hoped to secure Vingard Keep first, freeing the prisoners and slaves held there. Then she planned to push south on south and east, driving the dragon armies before her. Finally, she would catch them between the hammer of her troops and the anvil of the Dargard Mountains that divided Salamnia from Estwild. If she could retake Calaman and its harbor, she could cut the supply lines the dragon army depended on for its survival in this part of the continent. That is extremely good plan you know the it's the old thing catch him between the hammer and the anvil you know you're covering from both sides basically a double envelope 
You know, that's what Hannibal did to the Romans. Um, but we're going to find out that that doesn't quite go as planned. Um, Gilthinus uh, comes in and they talk about, they have talk about their parents and she's asking a father's well. He's like, well, he's as well as I think, as he, as I know, as I think he is, I don't really know. Then it turns out that Portheos and Alana Starbreeze have met and are working with the Knights and other places to drive the dragon armies out. The elves are finally on the same side. Everything seems to be going the way of the good, of the good races. Now Um, that turns out that uh, Portheos and Alana have uh, been engaged engage in marriage to unite the elven nations. Um, in later books, we'll find out it doesn't quite go how they want it to, but um, it was a very hopeful sign when it first happened. Quote, there has been talk of a marriage, Laurent said slowly. If so, I'm certain it would be a marriage of convenience only to unite our people. That doesn't exactly stay true. I cannot imagine Portheos had as in his head to heart to love anyone, even a woman as beautiful as Alana. As for the elven princess herself, Gilthan aside, her heart is buried in the high class terrace, Clarice Tower with Sturm. How did you know? Lorana looked at him, astonished. I saw them together in Tarsus, Gelthinus said. I saw his face and I saw hers. I knew about the Sergil, too. Since he obviously wanted to keep it secret, I did not betray him. He was a fine man, Gelthinus added gently. I'm proud to have known him, and I've never thought I would say that of a human. That is high praise coming from Gelthinus, who's still very much in the mindset of his people. You know, everybody loves Sturm and admired him. So, But it's easy to admire somebody who's dead. I mean, you know, because then you start to forget their foibles. Um, then Gilthinus reveals that he overheard a conversation between um, Ariacus and one of his high lords, and it turned out it was Kittyara. He doesn't want to tell her this, um, but he has. He feels he has to. Of course he has to, quote, Forgive me for causing you pain, Lorano, but you must know, Gilthinus said at last. Kittyar laughed about tennis with this Lord Ariacus and said, Gilthinus flushed, I cannot repeat what she said, but they are lovers, Lorana, that much I can tell you. She made it graphically clear. She asked Ariacus' permission to have Tannis promoted to the rank of general in the Dragon Army in return for some sort of information he is going to provide, something out of a green gemstone man. Lorana stops him, of course. You can't really take it. Um... I think now, this point, though, is one of the most adult things Lorana did. She sits there for a second, you know, this horrible blow being dealt to her by the man she loves, who is not only in the arms of another woman, has turned against their side entirely. Just imagine that. Somebody you love who you know has good in them, but then they, you know, for all, for all accounts, have now turned against you and turned against everything you stand for. Um, it'd probably be a pretty, pretty hard blow to the stomach. But then she does, then she, uh, she recovers Quote Lorana sat without moving For long moments Then pressing her lips Firmly together She picked up her pen Continued writing When she had left off When her brother entered Caring for with her plans You know She she knows well, This is what This has got to be done So she puts it aside And we'll deal with it later That's a very adult thing to do Something that not all of us can do um, So that's a very dark moment And also And again As always bringing up the the brightness that uh, I think they did this on purpose. Like they would always have a chapter with something really bad happen and then uh, throw us in some Flint and Tasselhoff. Flint and Tasselhoff are trying to get on the back of a dragon now. Okay. And you can, and you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine how bad that's going. How big is Tasselhoff? He's probably just under four feet tall. 
That's uh, adorable. I mean, Flint is probably of a height, but much heavier, you know, dwarves being a very brawny you know, type people. Um, but here we go. Quote, let me give you a boost, Tad said helpfully. I, no, wait, Flint yelled, but it did no good. The energetic kinder had already grabbed hold of the dwarf's boot and heaved, propelling Flint headfirst right into the hard-muscled body of the young bronze dragon. Hands flailing wildly, Flint caught hold of the harness on the dragon's neck and hung on for dear life, revolving slowly in the air like a sagging hook. You can imagine. Um, and of course, Tassahoff is getting... He's sweet and everything, but he doesn't have uh, endless bound of patience, so he's getting mad, too, because he can't help him. Um, and they're arguing over, well, everybody else is mounted. They're waiting on us. What's, you know, so they're arguing. Then uh, the dragon, who's sitting there watching this unfold, and keep in mind that neither one of them know that the dragon is sentient and can speak at this time. They just see a, a, a beautiful beast, but still a beast. But then we have... Uh, the dragon's point of view. Kirsaw, the dragon, gazed down at the two with amused impatience. A young dragon, as dragons count their time on Kryn, Kirsaw agreed with the kinder. It was time to fly, time to fight. He had been one of the first to answer the call that went out to all the gold and silver, bronze and brass dragons. The fire of battle burned hot within him. Doesn't that just make you like him immediately? I mean, he's such a likable character right off. He's like a, he's like the, the, uh, the big guy that shows up to deal with a bully. Like, oh, you're going to get your, you're, you're, you're getting what comes to you right now, and we're going to deal it out to you. Uh, Welcome to comeuppance town. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we continue, quote, yet young as he was, the bronze dragon held a great reverence and respect for the elders of the world. Though vastly older than dwarven years, Kearsaw saw a flint in one who had had a long, full, rich life, one worthy of respect. But Kearsaw thought with a sigh, if I don't do something, the kinder's right, the battle will be over. So he talks to Flint to try to help him out. Quote, Pardon me, respected sire, Kirsaw interrupted, using a term of high respect among dwarves. May I be of assistance? Startled, Flint whirled around to see who spoke. The dragon bowed his great head. Honored and respected sire, Kirsaw said again in dwarven. Amazed, Flint stumbled backward, tripping over Tasselhoff and sending the kinder tumbling to the ground in a heap. <laughs> so hopeless. The dragon forth, snaked forth his huge head and gently taking hold of the kinder's fur vest and his great teeth, left into his feet like a newborn kitten. Just, you know. <laughs> Then we get a we get a, a a point that's funny, but I don't even think that Flint would have the audacity to tell such a lie. Um, well, I, I don't know," stammered Flint, flushing in pleased embarrassment at being thus addressed by a dragon. "You might, and then again, you might not." Recovering his dignity, the dwarf was determined not to act overawed. I've done this a lot, mind you. Riding dragons is nothing new to me. It's just, well, just that I've... You've never a, ridden a dragon before in your life, Tazhoff said indignantly, and ouch! Just that I've had more important things on my mind lately, Flint said loudly, punching Taz in the ribs. And it may take me a while to get the hang of it again. Um, this whole exchange is just one of the most wondrous things, and what's coming up is one of my favorite parts of any of these books. The dragon reveals his name, to his, his name among... Uh, well, we'll say mortals to be Fireflash. Dragons are not immortal, though. The way in this world, they can it's a pretty cool name. It too. is. I mean, it's. Um, then he starts referring to Tasselhoff as Flint Squire, which you know uh, Tasselhoff is really not impressed by at first because you know he thinks he's among equals with Flint. You know, um, but then <laughs> Flint tells him he's like. Uh, Quote, you, Squire, he said to Taz, who was staring at him with his mouth open, get up there and do as you're told. I, you, 
Wait, Taz stuttered, but the kinder never finished what he had been about to say because the dragon had lifted him off the ground again. Teeth clamped firmly in the kinder's fur vest. Carousel raised him up and plopped him onto the back onto the saddle that was strapped to the dragon's bronze body. This shut Tassel off up because you can imagine his wonder. Um, you know, he's getting ready to ride a dragon. Can you imagine being Tassel off barefoot and, you know, being scared of nothing, usually, by the way, and this happening? Um, he is just overawed at, at what's happening. So um, then we get into a thing where they're, uh, they're the dragon lance. It, it's shows how it's constructed and stuff. I don't, you know, I, I guess it was necessary for a thing. It's on a swivel and then on a, on a guide where you can get under, get behind it, it a big shield and it guards you from dragon breath. So you can use the dragon lance. Um, it's, I guess it's should be in there, but I don't know. I never found much use for it. Um, <laughs> And of course, Tasselhoff has to do typical Tasselhoff stuff once they set up the dragon lance. This is great, Tass said, experimenting. Wham! There goes one dragon. Wham! There goes another. I oh, Tass stood up on the dragon's back, balanced lightly as the lance itself. Flint, hurry! They're getting ready to leave. I can see Lorana. She's riding that big silver dragon. She's flying this way, checking the line. They're going to be signaling in a minute. Hurry, Flint! Tass began jumping up and down in excitement. Flint. First, Sir Flint said, Kersaw, you must put on the padded vest there. That's right. Put the strap through that buckle. No, not that one. The other one. There you have it. You look like a woolly mammoth that I saw once, Taz giggled. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that story? I <laughs> confounded Flint roared, barely able to, to walk engulfed in the heavy fur lined vest. This is no time for any of your harebrained stories. The dwarf came nose, to, nose tip to nose tip with the dragon. Very well, beast. How do I get up? And mind you, don't you dare lay a hand on me. Um, then he... Fire flash bows his head down and puts his wing down and Flint climbs up on it like there being I've always liked the fact the dragon was just so respectful to, to Flint. Um, it's like riding an elephant. Elephants do that for you, too. Sure. But elephant. Well, elephants are smart, but they're not that smart. Um, then they're getting ready to. Uh, <laughs> dragon leaps a fire flash or care. So I'm going to him fire flash because I like that better. Leaps into the air um, and then they're on their way. Quote. The good dragons and the knights who rode them were gathered on the rolling foothills east of the Vanguard Mountains. Here, the chill of the the chill from the north. Hold on, the chill winter winds had given way to warm breezes from the north, melting the frost from the ground. The rich smell of growth and renewal perfuming the air as the dragons rose and flashing arcs to take their places in formation. This reminded me of there is a movie called Excalibur. If you've never, you guys have never seen it, it's a it's a telling of the Knights of the Round Table, of course. Um, it's by John Borman. Um, I, I like his movies, but he is so heavy handed sometimes. And just man, you know, uh, they had a a skit on with Sinbad on Saturday Night Live, or is the the black over actors association about it. Brits can be every bit as bad. I mean, especially in a John Borman movie. And but there is a, a great scene where it's the uh, the flight of the Valkyries playing. You know that song. I can't. I don't. Yeah, and um, it's and the land is dead at this at this point. Like Arthur has gotten sick, and the land sickened with him. But then he they give him a drink of the from the Holy Grail after Percival finds it and they're back on their horses riding to fight Mordred and that song's playing and then the and then the whole earth sprouts like all these trees start to sprout and flowers and stuff it's one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen you know John Borman might be very heavy handed in dialogue and stuff like that but that could not have been shot any better it was absolutely beautiful so um, as I said that it reminds me of this those dragons taking off and moving into position getting ready to fight their cousins I don't even know if they're related. 
they might be creatures who look different that i mean who look the same but are from you know that's actually something i might want to look up quote it was a sight that took the breath away tassahoff knew he would remember it forever and maybe even beyond that bronze and silver brass and copper wings flared in the morning light the greater dragon lances mounted on the saddles glittered in the sun the knight's armor shone brilliantly the kingfisher flag with its golden thread sparkled against the blue sky that's a wonderful description the past few weeks have been glorious as flint said it seemed the tide of war was finally flowing in the direction the golden general as Lauren came to be called by her troops had forged an ar- army sle- seemingly out of nothing the Palanthians, caught up in the excitement rallied to her cause she won the respect of the knights of salamnia with her bold ideas and firm decisive actions Lorana's ground forces surged out of palanthus forging across the flowing across the plain pressing the unorganized armies of the dragon dragon high lord known as the dark lady into panic-stricken flight um one thing you should know about this is that kitiara has never panicked we've talked about how lorana i like the fact we've talked about this before this is progressive two of the best generals in the entire thing are both women um and that does not i mean i'm not trying to foreshadow too much but it's definitely foreshadowing kitty ara knows exactly what she's doing right now yes she's being beaten but it's a controlled uh retreat I would liken it to Hannibal banging the Roman lines and then retreating and tell him to come get him. You know, that's it's kind of that. Uh, we'll get into that soon. Um, as always, and of course, we were we would see we would want to see this from Tassahoff's point of view. Something so wondrous, you would have to see it from his point of view. Quote. Tassahoff, peering over Flint's shoulder, could see Lorana ahead of them. She rode at the head of the line, sometimes looking back to make certain everyone was keeping up, sometimes bending down to consult with her silver mount. She seemed to have things well under control, so Taz decided he could relax and enjoy the ride. It truly was truly one of the most wondrous experiences of his life. Tears streaked his windblown face as he stared down in absolute joy. The map-loving kindred found the perfect map. Below him was spread in tiny, perfect detail, rivers and trees, hills and valleys, towns and farms. More than anything in the world, Taz wished he could capture the site and keep it forever. And, of course, he does. Why not, he wondered suddenly. Clinging to the saddle with his knees and thighs, the kinder let go of Flint and began rummaging around in his pouches. Dragging out a sheet of parchment, he rested firmly against the dwarf's back and began to draw it on it with a piece of charcoal. Um, of course, that makes Flint extremely upset. Quit wiggling, he shouted, at, he shouted at Flint, who was still trying to grab the reins. What are you doing, you doorknob? The dwarf yelled, pawing frantically at Taz behind, him to keep, about, uh, behind his back like an itch he couldn't scratch. I'm making a map, Taz yelled in ecstasy. The perfect map. I'll be famous. Look, there are our own troops like little ants. And there's Vanguard Keep. Stop moving. You made me mess up. Groaning, Flint gave up to either, gave up, let's see trying to either grasp the reins or brush away the kinder. He decided he had better concentrate on keeping a firm grip on both the dragon and his breakfast. He had made, made the mistake of looking down. Now he stared straight ahead, shivering, his body rigid. The hair from the mane of the griffin, <laughs> remember, it's horse hair, that decorated his helm whipped about his face wildly in the rushing wind. I like how, that's one of the best things about Weiss Hayden, those little touches where we know it's horse hair, but he claims he's allergic to horses. Since he's not allergic to that, it must be the mane of a griffin. Griffin don't have manes. So, <laughs> and people try to point that out to him, and then, you know, he's so stubborn, he's not going to give it up. Birds wheeled in the skies beneath him. Flint decided then and there that dragons were going on his list with boats and horses and with boats and horses as things to avoid at all costs. They capitalized things to avoid at all costs. That's another good thing. <laughs> um, then the, um, Uh, 
the humans, uh, Flynn is having a trouble guiding the dragon. He thinks he's in control. The humans and everybody else are this and, and are there just to, to couch the lances and use them. The dragons have are, are not being maybe they have an experienced rider and they'd work with them as in this this person is will is will is smart will work together like Kitty Ara does with her dragon Sky. You know, that's a a relationship of mutual respect. And they work together as a good fighting team. Um, obviously, because she you know, she's won quite a few battles and risen in the ranks of the dragon armies. You know, she didn't start as a general. She had to work her way up the ranks. So, um, but in this case, none of these people have ever rid, ridden dragons. So the dragons are basically just taking control and they're settling into, you know, their, their fighting forms. And, um, uh, they're just trying to get control of the lance quote, Flint's, Flint grappled with the lance, but he didn't have time to adjust it or set it properly against his shoulder. Not that it mattered. The blue dragon still hadn't seen them. I'm sorry. They, they have seen these blue dragons flying towards them, and the, now the the good dragons are settling themselves, as I said, into battle positions. Um, gliding out of the cloud, fire flash fell in behind them. Then, like a bronze flame, the young dragon flashed over a group of blues, aiming for their leader, a big blue dragon with a blue-helmed rider. Diving swiftly and silently, fire flash struck the lead dragon with all murderously sharp talons. I love that. He flew above him so he could come down on top of him. That's a brilliant uh, three-dimensional you know, battle plan. The force of the impact threw Flint forward in his in his harness. Taz landed on top of him, flattening the dwarf. Frantically, Flint struggled to sit up, but Taz had one arm wrapped around him tightly. Beating the dwarf on the helm with the other, Taz was shouting encouragement to the dragon. That was great. Hit him again, shrieked the kinder, wild with excitement, pounding Flint on the head. <laughs> it's just, God. Um, something happens here that is definite foreshadowing. Um I'm trying to see whose point of view it was from. Um, it's Taz. Taz sees he sees Flint and he makes an observation. Observation. Flint sat up and Taz clasped his arms around the dwarf tightly. He thought Flint looked strange, sort of gray colored and oddly preoccupied. <laughs> um, but then this certainly was a normal experience. Taz reminded himself before he could ask Flint if he felt all right. Cursaw, fire flash, dove out of the cloud once more. Um, I'm not trying to, I want to get anything away before it happens, but that's a definitely, you know, that's, that's definitely referencing something. Quote, risking a glance beneath, behind him, Taz caught his breath. The sight was magnificent. Bronze and silver flashed in the sun as the white stone dragons broke out of the cloud cover and descended, screaming upon the flight of blues. Instantly, the flight broke as the blues fought to regain altitude and keep the pursuers from attacking them from behind. Here and there, battles broke out. Lightning cracked and flared, nearly blinding the kinder as a great bronze dragon to his right screamed in pain and fell from the air, its head blackened and burning. Taz saw its rider helplessly grasping the reins, his mouth opened in a scream, but kinder could not see, but the kinder could not see could see but not hear as dragon and rider plunged to the ground below Taz stared at the ground rushing closer and closer and wondered in a dreamlike haze what it be would it be like to smash into the gra- grass but he didn't have time to wonder long because suddenly Kier saw let out a roar um he's been uh he's challenging this blue dragon basically a single combat um and then he tells then he's getting them ready. Quote, now it's your turn, dwarf. Set the lance. 
Kearsaw yelled, lifting his great wings. Remember, Kearsaw's fire flash is just sometimes I forget. The bronze soared up and up, gaining altitude for maneuvering and also giving the dwarf time to prepare. I'll hold the reins, Tash shouted, but the kinder couldn't tell if Flint heard him or not. The dwarf's face was rigid and he was moving slowly and mechanically. Wild with impatience, Taz could do nothing but hang onto the reins and watch while Flint fumbled with gray fingers until he finally managed to fix the hilt of the lance beneath his shoulder and brace that he had been taut. Then he just stared straight ahead, his face empty of all expression. Um, There, this battle is. There's so much here. Um, uh, you know, they the fire flash and this blue dragon get locked together because the lance goes into the blue dragon and it gets caught. So they're just kind of they're falling. You know, they're all falling all to both dragons and you know all three riders. Um, and Taz wonders why fire flash hasn't let go, and then he sees that the lance is. Um, quote the dragon lance had missed its mark striking the wing bone joint of the blue dragon the lance had bent into his shoulder and was now locked t- lodged tight desperately the blue fought to free himself but fire flash now filled with battle rage lashed out the blue with his sharp fangs and ripping talon front feet intent upon their own battle both dragons had completely forgotten the riders tad forgotten the other rider too until glancing up helplessly he saw the blue helm dragon offer cling precariously to his saddle only a few feet away um then the uh, this this officer jumps over to their dragon and is going to attack Taz and Flint. Um, let's see. He tell and uh, Flint tries to tell. Uh, Taz tries to tell Flint to release the lance, quote, but the dwarf held onto the lance fast, that strange faraway look on his face. The dragons fought and clawed and bit in midair, the, dra- the blue twisting, trying to free himself from the lance as well as fend off its attacker. Taz saw the blues riders shout something. That, that, that sentence doesn't make any sense. Taz saw the blues riders shout something. That wouldn't be, wouldn't be heard. And the blue broke off its attack for an instant, holding himself steady in the air. With a rock of agility, the, dra- the officer leaped from one dragon to the other. Grasping Kearsaw around the neck with his good arm, the dragon officer pulled himself upright, his strong legs and thighs clamping themselves firmly into the dragon's neck. Um, he has a bad arm. I think we, this, is, uh, this is a guy we've met before. Um, continues, quote, The officer cast one quick glance back at the kinder and the dwarf behind him and saw that neither was likely to be a threat strapped as they might must be into place. Coolly, the officer drew his long sword and, leaning down, began to slash the bronze dragon's harness straps where they crossed the, across the beast's chest ahead of the great wings. Flint, ta- pleaded Taz, release the lance. Look, the kinder shook the dwarf. If that officer cuts through the harness, our saddle will fall off. The lance will fall off. We'll fall off. Flint turned his head slowly, suddenly understanding, still moving with agonizing slowness. His shaking hand fumbled at the mechanism that would release the lance and free the dragons from their deadly embrace. But would it be in time? Tanis saw the longsword flash in the air. Taz saw the longsword flash in the air. He saw one of the harness straps sag and flutter free. There wasn't time to think or plan. While Flint gla- grappled with release, Taz, rising up precariously, wrapped the reins around his waist. Then, hanging onto the edge of the saddle, the kinder crawled out behind the dwarf until he's in front of him. Here he lay down flat along the dragon's neck and wrapping his legs around the dragon's spiny mane. He wormed his way forward when it came up silently behind the officer. Um, he, <laughs> Tessoff, starts to attack this guy. Um, this dragon army officer. Um, 
Quote, rising up, Tassiloff leaped onto the officer's back. Startled, scrabbling wildly to keep himself balanced, the officer let his sword fall as he clung desperately to the dragon's neck. Snarling and raised, the officer tried to see what had struck him when suddenly everything was, went dark. Small arms wrapped around themselves around his head, blinding him. Frankly, the officer, frantically, the officer let go of, of his hold on the dragon in an effort to free himself of what seemed to his enraged mind to be a creature with six legs and arms, all of them circling, clinging to him with a bug-like tenacity. But he felt himself start to go slide off the dragon and was forced to grab hold of the mane. Um, and then uh, Tesshoff tells him to you know release the lance. We got you know it's it's that whole thing. The, the, this whole thing is he's, he's got to release that lance so they can get a, get up you know get apart. Um, quote. Then a great metallic bang sounded. The lance released. The dragons were freed. Spreading his wings, Kearsaw pulled out of the spinning dive and leveled off. The sky and ground resumed their proper correct positions. Tears streamed down Taz's cheeks. He hadn't been frightened, he told himself, sobbing, but nothing had ever looked upon so beautiful as that blue, blue sky back up where it should be. Um... And he asked Fireflash if he's okay. Um... And then Taz says, quote, I've got a prisoner, Taz called, called, suddenly realizing that fact himself. Slowly, he let go of the man who shook his head dizzily, half choked. I guess they're not going anywhere, Taz muttered. Sliding off the man's back, the kinder crawled down the main toward the dragon's shoulders. Taz saw the officer look up into the skies and clench his fists in bitter rage as he watched his dragons being slowly driven from the skies by Lorana and her forces. In particular, the officer's gaze fixed on Lorana, and suddenly Taz knew where he had seen him before. This is this is the his name is Bakaris. It's the guy who, who Lorana shot in the arm with the arrow. Um, <laughs> um they come in for a landing, um, and we see that uh, Fireflash is a little bit worse the worse for wear. Quote, the dragon arches had to look around at the, his riders and Tass saw, saw that one eye was swollen shut. There were scorch and burn marks all along one side of the bronze head and blood dripped from a torn nostril. He glanced around for the blue. He was nowhere to be seen. Looking back at the officer, Taz suddenly felt wonderful. It occurred to him what he had done. Hey, he yelled in elation, turning around to Flint. We did it. We fought a dragon and I captured a prisoner single handed. So... <laughs> um, then you know battle's over now basically the the good dragons and lorana them have won um then we get a passage um as i said it was it was a uh, foreshadowing earlier and we get more of that quote the dwarf was slumped over the saddle his face old and tired looking his lips blue what's the matter nothing but you're holding your chest are you wounded no i'm not and why are you holding your chest flint scowled I suppose I have no peace until I answer you. Well, if you must know, it's that confounded, confounded lance. And whoever de- designed this stupid vest was a bigger ninny than you are. The shaft of the lance drove right into my collarbone. I'll be black and blue for a week. And as for your prisoner, it's a wonder you weren't both killed, you rattlebrain. Captured. More like an accident, if you ask me. And I'll tell you something else. I'm never going to, getting on another one of those great beasts as long as I live. Flint shut his lips with an angry snap glaring at the kinder so fiercely that Taz turned around and walked quickly away, knowing that when Flint was in that kind of mood, it was better best to leave him alone to cool off. He'd feel better after lunch. It wasn't until after it wasn't until that night when Tasselhoff was curled up next to, to Fireflash, resting comfortably against one dragon's great bronze flank that he remembered Flint had been clutching the left side of his chest. Um Flint's old. And you know uh, what they're going to do coming up. I really like um, it. Has always been one of my favorite parts of the of the book. Um, it's sad, 
But um, I think we all know what's going to happen. He's got a bad heart and all that stuff. But uh, you know, it's just when 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 they finally do it, it's 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 sad, but it's very peaceful, and it's uh, a, a really great moment. I thought it was I was I think it's some of their best writing. You know, um, it won't be this. There'll be next week's episode that uh, we find out what happens with Flint. He's he's fine for now. Um. After that, we get uh, the name of the chapter is Spring Dawning. It's book three, chapter one, and aptly named. Quote, as the day dawned, pink and golden light spreading across the land, the citizens of Calaman woke to the sound of bells. Leaping out of bed, children invaded parental bedrooms, demanding that mother and father arise so this special day could get underway. Though some grumbled and feigned to pull the blankets over their heads, most parents laughed and climbed out of bed, not less eager than their children. Today was a memorable day in the history of Calaman. Not only was it the annual Spring Dawning Festival, it was also a victory celebrating celebration for the armies of the Knights of Salamnia. Camped on the plains outside the walled city, the army, led by its now legendary general, an elf woman, would be making a triumphal entry into the city at noon. As the sun peeped over the walls, the sky above Calaman was filled with the smoke of cooking fires and soon smells of sizzling ham and warm muffins, frying bacon and exotic coffees, roused even the sleepiest from warm beds. Doesn't that sound great? They would have been roused from roused soon enough anyway for almost immediately the streets were filled with children. All discipline was relaxed on the occasion of spring dawning. After a long winter of being cooped up indoors, children were allowed to run wild for a day. By nightfall, there would be bruised heads, skin knees, and stomach aches from too many sweets, but all were remembered as a glorious day. Um, then we get to the procession, the victory procession of the Lorana leading the knights into the city. Um, quote. Then at noon, the bells rang out again. The city's cl- the streets cleared. People lined the sidewalks. The city gates were flung open, and the Knights of Salamia prepared to enter Calaman. An expected hush came over the crowd. Peering ahead eagerly, they jostled to get a good view of the knights, particularly the elf woman of whom they had heard so many stories. She rode in first, alone, mounted on a pure white horse. This would be a great cinematic moment. You know, flowers raining down around Lorana. You know, she's you know, you know, she probably would look tired. She would look beaten, but she would be, you know, it, it just, I think it'd be a good cinematic moment. The crowd prepared to cheer from themselves unable to speak. So odd were they by the woman's beauty and majesty dressed in flashing silver armor, decorated, decorated with beaten gold work. Lorana guided her steed through the city gates and into the streets. A delegation of children had been carefully rehearsed to strew flowers on Lorana's path, but so overcome were the children at the sight of the lovely woman in their glittering armor that they clutched their flowers and never threw a single one. Behind the golden-haired elf maiden rode two who caused not a few in the crowd to point in wonder. A kinder and a dwarf mounted together on a shaggy pony with a back as broad as a barrel. The kinder seemed to be having a wonderful time, yelling and waving to the crowds, but the dwarf sitting behind him, grasping around the waist with a death-like grip, was sneezing so badly he seemed likely to sneeze himself right off the back of the animal. Remember his psychosomatic allergy to horses, or I guess ponies included, so... Following the dwarf and kinder rode an elf lord, so like the elf maiden that no one in the crowd needed his neighbor to tell him they were brother and sister. Beside the elf lord rode another elf maid with strange silver hair and deep blue eyes. He seemed shy and nervous among the crowd. Then came the knights of Salamnia, perhaps 75 strong, resplendent in gleaming armor. The crowd began to cheer, waving flags in the air. Um, Lorana as any good general would and any good person, really, they want to herald her, you know, hero of the city and do all this stuff for her. And she's like, I'm not really here. I was just 
all these other people who fought and died are heroes. I'm just, I managed to make it out of there, you know, and yes, I guided it, but basically saying that anybody could have done it. You know, I just was the one that got appointed the job. You know, it's not true. She did a great job, but she's definitely doesn't like that kind of attention, which is a very mature thing in my opinion. Um, but they finally uh, uh, get her to agree, and she's going to give a speech and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then we get the end of that. Quote, the noise was deafening. Um, that's after they say her name. It reverberated off the tall stone walls. Lorana looked out over the sea of open mouths and wildly waving flags. They didn't want to hear about my fear, she said wearily. They have fears enough of their own. They don't want to hear about darkness and death. They want children's tale about love and rebirth and silver dragons. Don't we all? With a sigh, Lorana turned to Selvara. Taking the roses back, she held them up into the air, waving to the jubilant crowd. Then she began her speech. Um... <laughs> Is you know, you just get to like her more and more. I mean, at least I do. She's uh, really coming to her own as a great character. Um, but then uh, plot thickens, as we say. Uh, Tessa Hoff is out on town. Quote, Tessa Hoff was having a splendid time. It had been an easy task to evade Flint's watchful gaze and slip off the platform where he'd been told to stand with the rest of the dignitaries. Melting into the crowd, he was now free to explore this interesting city again. Long ago, he'd come to Calaman with his parents, and he cherished fond memories of the open-air bazaar, the seaport where the white-haired, white-winged ships lay at anchor, and a hundred other wonders. Um, <laughs> of course... He just wandered around. Idly, he wandered among the festive crowd, his keen eyes seeing everything, his hands busy stuffing objects into his pouches. Really, Tess thought, the people of Cowman were extremely careless. careless. Persis had the most uncanny habit of falling for people's belts into Tess's hands. The streets might be paved with jewels away he discovered rings and other fascinating trinkets. Then he comes to a... He comes to a map shop. You know, that would be Tasselhoff's you know, he, he would definitely have to get in on that. Um, quote, then the candor, the candor was transported into realms of delight when he came across a cartographer's stall. And as fortune would have it, the cartographer had gone to watch the parade. The stall was locked and shuttered with a large clothes sign hanging on a hook. What a pity, thought Taz. But I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I just looked at his maps. Reaching out, he gave the lock an expert twitch and smiled happily. A few more twitches and it would open easily. He mustn't really mean for people to keep out if he put such a simple lock. I'll just pop in a copy of, of a few of his maps to update, update my collection. Um, then he is accosted by a, um, a, a robed cloaked hooded figure as a, it's, it's no secret. That's a draconian. Um, he gives him a, a message to deliver to Lorana. Um, and they don't, you know, they really don't disabuse you of that notion. Quote, gasping for breath, the, the shaking kinder stared at the figure as it walked away, his long robes fluttering in the wind. Taz absently patted the scroll that had been thrust into his pocket. The sound of that voice brought back very unpleasant memories. The ambush on the road from Solace. Heavily cloaked figures like clerics, only they weren't clerics, Taz shuddered. A draconian, here in Calaman. 
<laughs> Here we get a little bit of comedy on top of the two. Shaking his head, Taz turned back to the cartographer stall, but the pleasure had gone out of the day. He could even he couldn't even feel excited when the lock fell open into his small hand. Hey, you shrieked a voice. Kinder, get away from there. A man was running up to him, puffing and red in the face. Probably the cartographer himself. You shouldn't have run, Taz said listlessly. You needn't you needn't bother opening up for me. <laughs> Opening the man's jaw sack Well you little thief I, I just got here in time Thanks all the same Taz dropped the lock Into the man's hand And walked off Absentmindedly Evading the enraged Cartographer's effort To grab him I'll be going now I'm not feeling very well Oh by the way Did you know that lock's broken Worthless You should be more careful You never who could, know Who could sneak in No don't thank me I haven't got time Goodbye Tassahoff wandered off Cries of thief rang out behind him. A town guardsman appeared, forcing Taz to duck into a butcher shop to avoid being run over. Shaking his head over the corruption of the world, the kinder glanced about, hoping for a glimpse of the culprit. <laughs> Seeing no window, seeing his he kept going and suddenly wondered irritably how Flint managed to lose him again. <laughs> God, he's such a, such a great character. Um, later on, Laurent is in a room Um She's just relaxing after, you know, she had too much wine or whatever. And then uh, Flint and Taz come in to talk to her. Um, Taz have, have, has a, had, of course, already read it. That was a funny part where she's like, you read it already? He's just like, well, I, didn't, I, I need to know if it was important enough to bother you with. <laughs> you know, it's just his... She, his sincere innocence over things like that are just, it's such a lovable characteristic, you know. Of course, we don't have to deal with somebody stealing our stuff all the time. Like, we'd be sitting around here like, that goddamn Tassahoff stole Where my- are the microphones? <laughs> he stole he stole all the all the action figures from the table. But then he's the kind of guy, it will really hurt his feelings if you say you stole them. You just say, hey, do you, have you seen those action figures? Oh, yeah, I'm glad, glad you're here. They were just laying there. Somebody, anybody could have taken them, so I'm just <laughs> holding them for you. Just I love them so much. Um, let's see. Then uh, Flint gets the letter and, and opens to read it to her. Quote, the dwarf opened it and read aloud. Tannis Half-Elven received a wound in the Battle of Vingard Keep. Although at first it was believed it was slight, it is worse than so that he's past even the help of the Dark Clerics. I ordered that he be brought to Dargard Keep, where I could care for him. Tannis knows the gravity of his injury. He has to always be allowed... He has to be allowed to be with you when he dies, that he may explain matters to you and so rest with his easy spirit. I make you this offer. You have as your captor my, captive my officer, Bacarus, who was captured near Vingard Keep. I'll exchange Tannis Half-Elwin for Bacarus. The, ex- the exchange will take place at dawn tomorrow in a grove of trees beyond the city walls. Bring Bacarus with you. If you are mistrustful, me, you'll also bring, you may also bring Tannis's friends, Flint Fireforge and Tassahoff Barfoot, but no one else. The bearer of this note waits outside the city gate. Meet him tomorrow at sunrise. If he deems all is well, he will ask you or escort you to the half-elf. If not, you will never see Tannis alive. I do this only because we are two women who understand each other. Kitty Ara. That's, to us, on the outside, this is obviously a trap. You know, it's... I mean, and even and and to the to their credit, both Tannis and I mean, both Tasselhoff, no, both Flint and even Tasselhoff see it like you're not going to this, are you? You know, this is obviously not good. You know, this this is they're, they're setting you up. But Lorana, um, 
there's one part where from Flint's point of view, yeah, we were talking about how much she's matured. Um, and I can't, I can't find the passage. I should, I really should have highlighted it. Um, but he Flint from his point of view says that as they're trying to talk her out of it, she gets this look on her face that he is reminded of when she was first, when they first met her again, when she was still a spoiled child, was going to get her way and sets her teeth and frowns, you know, and is going to get her. Flint sees that. And that is a regression to what she was before because of Tannis. Like she loves him. She, she thinks he's dying. She has to get to him, all these things, you know, the, the Rana who just led this victory and who has done all these great things and all, you know, has, has saved the city has basically saved the continent of Ancelon at this point would not have done this, but there's still enough of that in her that she is going to make a huge, um, and here we actually, I just found it. Um, Flint basically tells her there's some he said there's got to be some kind of protocol for prisoner exchange you can't do this you're you know he said if you were in your father's court and that's what sets her off because you know again she's not old enough to be away from home at this point she would be considered a young teenager more than likely you know uh, among elven standards and Lorana that sets her off and Flint in 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 the description knows that what he said was wrong. Quote, I am no longer in my father's court, Lorana flashed, and to the abyss with, abyss with protocol. Rising to her feet, she regarded Flint coldly, as if he were someone she had just met. The dwarf was, in fact, strongly reminded of her as she had, as he had seen her in Quellinesti the evening she had run away from her home to follow after Tannis in childish infatuation. She's acting very childish at this point. Um, They try to talk her out of it, but it's not um, its not happening. She is going to do what she's going to do. We get a slight interlude here. Um, we actually get to see uh, Kitty, things from Kitty R's point of view. And um, we, we are dropped into a scene of a giant red dragon carrying a rider on, uh, into Dargard, Dargard Keep. Quote, at the farther end of the Dargard Mountains stood their destination. Dargard Keep, as dark and dismal as its legends. Once, when the world was young, Dargard Keep had graced the mountain's peaks. The mountain peak, its rose-colored walls rising in graceful, sweeping beauty up from the rock in the very likeness of a rose itself. But now, thought Ariacus grimly, the roses had died. Yes, we are doing an Ariacus chapter, and I am very excited. I've always loved this guy. Um, the High Lord was not a poetic man, nor was was he much given to flights of fancy, but the fire black and crumbling castle atop the rock looked so much like a decayed rose upon a withering bush that the image struck him forcibly black latticework stretching from broken tower to broken tower, no longer formed the petals of the rose. Instead mused Ariacus is a web of the insect whose poison has killed it. The great red dragon wheeled a final time. The Southern wall surrounding the courtyard had fallen a thousand feet to the base of the cliff during the cataclysm, leaving clear passage to the gates of the keep itself. Breathing a heartfelt sigh of relief. The red saw smooth tiled pavement beyond broken only here and there by rents in the stonework suitable for a smooth landing even dragons who feared few things on Korean found it healthier to avoid Lord Arayaka's dis- displeasure it's quite an endorsement when a creature who could probably literally eat you still doesn't want to piss you off 
This guy's history. I had a punched up a minute ago, and I read all about him, all that stuff. He is, if you made a book about him, and I think they did, called Emperor of Ancelon or something, like, I never read it because I didn't read a lot of the satellite stuff to um, Dragonlance. But he is, he, he never reminded me so forcefully of someone as Conan. He reminds me of a Conan the Barbarian type character, only he's not a good guy, really. Conan, you might want to make the case that it, Conan wasn't a really good guy either. He's very, his morality is very gray. He steals, he does things, he's, you know, whatever. But he was definitely a character that people, he tried to do the right thing most of the time. This guy didn't. And he went on this whole, he had this amazing tale where he was lured to this place and he made love with this beautiful woman. And then, and then she had him kill her. And it turns out it wasn't her. It was Tachesis, the queen of darkness. And she was testing him to see if he would do evil things. And then gives him, gives him this giant, like, uh, I think it's called the Durkin sword or something like that. This giant blade that's magic. And, you know, it can, I think one of the coolest things about it is the different breath powers of the dragons. It can use those in turn. Like it'll be a frost blade or it'll be an acid blade or, you know, and he can dictate what he's going to do with it. You know, great fighter. I would say strength for strength. I would say Karaman would have a rough time with him, you know, uh, now in a fight, in a sword fight, I think he would just take Karaman apart. I love Karaman. He's a beast all that stuff, but he's a, he's too soft hearted. He is such a sweet person that, you know, he's been in lots of fights and lots of wars and all that stuff. And, you know, I think he does have the killer instinct to a certain degree, but this guy just has it more. You know, we've seen people with, you know, it's like an MMA fight. Somebody who has that killer instinct who's really going to go for the throat, like immediately. Karaman would be, have a little bit of honor about him and try not, this guy doesn't. He's just not that way. Um, as I said in the description, he's tall, black-headed, really muscular, um, I think their description later that he has out wrestled minotaurs and stuff like that. He's just, he's that guy. I mean, he's a great evil character and why they just now really introduced him. I don't know. I'm kind of glad they did because it built him up some. And when they finally delivered, it was really completely worth it. Um, he's here though, uh, to deal with Kitty because keep in mind, this is after the battle of Palanthus. She's lost. She's on the run. The, Remember the, the dragon armies there were Kitty Ars. That was that was her command. She's a dragon high lord, and those were her her armies. She was the blue dragon army commander. Like all the blue dragons, you know, fought on her command, and she apparently has lost. It in the evil world of the evil people, it's definitely not a good thing to lose. Um, Kitty R is is occupied. Um, there's a. <laughs> There's a guy who comes, uh, his name's Garabonis, who's come out of the room putting his clothes on because apparently they were occupied. Kitty Ara likes to, uh, she likes to get it in. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, they really wrote her as a, like, like I said, as a very lustful, neat, you know, kind of needy character sometimes. Um, he comes out and Garabonis tries to stop Ariacus at the door, trying to tell him what she's trying to dress. Doesn't go well for him. Quote, Without a word, without even pausing in his stride, Lord Ariacus swung his gloved hand. The blow caught Carabonis in the rib cage. There was a whooshing sound like a bellows def- deflating and the sound of bones cracking. Then a wet, soggy splatter as the force of the blows in the young man's body into the wall opposite the stairs some ten yards distant. It's quite a punch. 
The limp body slid to the floor below, but Ariacus never noticed. Without a backward glance, he resumed his climb, his eyes on the door at the top of the stairs. Lord Ariacus, commander-in-chief of the Dragon Armies, reporting directly to the Dark Queen herself, was a brilliant man, a military genius. Ariacus had nearly held the rulership of, the Ancelon, of Ancelon in his grasp. Already he was styling himself emperor. His queen was truly pleased with him. His rewards from, from her were many and lavish. But now he saw his beautiful dreams slipping through his fingers like smoke from autumn fires. He'd received reports of his troops fleeing wildly across the Salamic Plains, falling back from Palanthus, withdrawing from Vingard Keep, abandoning plans abandoning plans for the siege of Calaman. The elves had allied with human forces in northern and southern Urgoth. The mountain dwarves had emerged from the subterranean home of Thurbarden, and, it was reported, allied with their ancient enemies, the hill dwarves, and a group of human refugees in an attempt to drive the dragon armies from Abyssinia. That that is actually in the book Stormblade, which is, you know, again, I, that's one a book I highly recommend. We might actually do a, a quick one on that book one day, a quick show. Sylvanesti had been freed. A dragon highlord had been killed in an ice wall. And remember, Lauron had killed him. He was a dark elf named Fielthas. Um, and if rumor was to be believed, a group of Kali du- dwarves held back Starcast. That's like filthy. Put that in perspective. That's like filthy Ewoks beating the, uh, you know, beating the Empire. Somebody's head's going to roll for that one, you know. And we get a brief description. uh of Ariacus and his uh, who he is kind of quote Ariacus inherited his position of authority from his father who'd been a cleric in high standing with the queen of darkness although only 40 Ariacus held, had held his position almost 20 years his father having been an untimely death at the hands of his own son when Ariacus was two he'd watch his father brutally murder his mother who'd been attempting to flee with her little son before the child became as perverted with he was his father though Ariacus was always, had always treated his father with outward shows of respect he had never forgot his father his mother's murder he worked hard and excelled in his studies making his father inordinately proud many wondered whether that pride was with the father as he as he felt the first thrust of the knife blade his 19 year old son plunged into his body in revenge for his mother's death and with an eye to the throne of the dragon high lord um like i said this guy is not only okay we've discussed raceland and how difficult the the test is for the towers of high sorcery and stuff this guy is a, a general in the dragon armies of queen takesis he is a High priest in Takisa's service, another difficult position, and he's a black robed magician who went took the test and emerged through it from it unscathed. This guy is something else, and I, like I said, I love characters like this. He's a Darth Vader style character. I mean, you see him coming, it's your ass. So you know, and he's coming to deal with Kitty R. So we're gonna see how it uh, goes for her. It doesn't go well. Um, he he doesn't one thing i like he does here he doesn't kick in the door he says a small word of magic and blows the door up just blows the door off its hinges and it flies into pieces as kitty r is you know naked trying to get dressed quote kit was in bed at the sight of ariacus she rose her hand clutching a silken dressing gown around her lithe body even though his raging fury ariacus was still forced to admire the woman who of all his commanders he came to rely on most Though his arrival must have caught her off guard, though she must have known, though she must know she had forfeited her life by allowing herself to be defeated, she faced him coolly and calmly. Not a spark of fear lit her brown eyes, not a murmur escaped her lips. I admire that. I'm a fairly large man. If I saw this guy coming at me, probably going to shit my pants. 
I mean, I think we all would like, or at least be like, well, here it comes. <laughs> it's like, what, am, what can I do? I can't stop him. He's got magic, superhuman strength, and he's a dark cleric. He can do whatever he wants to me. Um, she got a little bit nervous as he's looking at her, but she didn't lose her composure. Quote, few there were who could look upon, look up Arika's face without blen- without blenching. I, I think they, that's a typo there. It should be look up at Arika's face without blanching. It was a face devoid of any human emotion. Even his anger showed only a twitching of a muscle along his jaw. Long black hair swept down around his pallid features. A day's growth of beard appeared blue on his smooth shaven skin. His eyes were cold or black and cold as an ice bound lake. Um, he then drags her, quote, Arikas reached the side of the bed in a bound, reaping down the reaping down the curtains that hung around it. He reached out and grabbed hold of Kit's short curly hair, dragging her from her bed. He hurled her to the stone floor. Kittyara fell heavily, an exclamation of pain escaping her, but she recovered quickly and was already starting to twist to her feet like a cat when Arikas' voice froze her. Stay on your knees, Kittyara, he said, slowly deliberately removed his long shining sword from his scabbard. Stay on your knees and bow your head as the condemned do when they come to the block. For I'm your executioner, Kittyara. Thus do my commanders pay for their failure. Um. Then something happens that that, that even Ariakas can't deal with. And then we have, you know, again, it's almost like professional wrestling. It's it's almost it's the Game of Thrones factor where you have a badass and then you have to have another badass to stop him, you know, who's going to be. But even even as bad as he is, the guy who's the being, let's say, is going to stop this is just a little bit more tough. Quote. Kittyar remained kneeling, but she looked up at him. Seeing the flame of hatred in her brown eyes, Arikas felt a moment's thankfulness that he held his sword in his hand. Once more, he was compelled to admire her. Even facing imminent death, there was no fear in her eyes, only defiance. He raised his blade, but the blow did not fall. Bone-cold fingers wrapped around the wrist of his sword arm. I believe you should hear the High Lord's explanation, said a hollow voice. Lord Arikas was a strong man. He could hurl a spear with enough force to drive it completely through the body of a horse. He could break a man's neck with one twist of his hand, yet he found he could not rinse himself loose from the chill grasp that was slowly crushing his wrist. Finally, in agony, Arikas dropped the sword. It fell to the floor with a clatter. He's then whirls around and see who's he going to deal with. You know, he's even got magic and he is faced with something that we've discussed this guy before. He's an awesome character and he's one of my favorites. Quote, then he stopped. Seconding his breath, Arikas stumbled backward. The magic spell he had been prepared to cast slipping, slipping from his mind. Before him stood a t- figure no taller than himself, clad in armor so old it predated the cataclysm. The armor was that of a knight of Salamnia. The symbol of the Order of the Rose was traced upon the front, barely visible and worn with age. The armored figure wore no helm. It carried no weapon. Yet Ariacus, staring staring at it, fell back another step, for the figure he stared at was not the figure of a living man. The being's face was transparent. Arias could see right through it to the wall beyond. A pale light flickered in the cavernous eyes. It stared straight ahead as if it too could see right through Ariacus. A death knight, he whispered in awe. The Lord rubbed his aching wrists, numb from the cold of those who dwell in realms from, from the warth of living flesh. Um This is Lord Soth, the Knight of the Black Rose. And you can't get a better name than that. Remember when Sturm was uh, drummed out of the knighthood, he got a black rose. You know, that that's the symbol of failure. Well, Lord Soth 
there is a whole book about him, and he's this. He could have stopped the cataclysm. We're gonna, we're gonna have to break it down quick because we are getting close to time, and all this stuff. Dargard Keep is his. We have no time limit. This is like a 1983 NWA championship <laughs> okay. match. Good God. Um, he was this very well respected and powerful in Islamia. Lord Soth was. He fell in love with an elf woman and murdered his own wife so he could be with this one. Well, he he could have he personally could have stopped the cataclysm. He could have stopped the king priest from doing what he did and saved everybody. Saved two continents, saved millions of lives, saved so much awful uh, so many awful things from happening for so many disparate peoples all over this whole planet because there are there's another continent besides Talatus, and i guarantee they probably got it as bad as the other two so you know this one guy could have done it but he was turned aside of his mission by these they worked for the king priests these elven clerics and these women and they stopped him the cataclysm happened and then they stopped him by telling him that his wife was in the arms of another man and Lord Soth rose, rode back, killed his wife, his elven wife, who was pregnant with his son, by the way. And the whole keep went up in flames, and he was cursed and became the Death Knight, Lord Soth. He has a whole group of it were they were his men, who are now skeleton warriors who serve under him. They are stupid powerful. Like there's a there's a moment in one of the later books where he points a dragon and says die and the dragon dies like that's how it was a big like I think it was a big either a silver or gold dragon and he kills it that's some Jedi shit I mean he's just he's unreal I mean there you know you can look up pictures of Lord Soth there's one by Keith Parkinson called Lord Soth's Ride and it is fun fact Parkinson's disease is named after that man well he is dead so I don't know. <laughs> We're going to look up Lord Soth real quick. Images. Have to cut through this later. Here's a, well, let's see. There's so many good pictures of the guy. Here's a good one. That's, that's Lord, terrifying. That's Lord Soth. Here is uh, an even better one. Also terrifying. Yeah, he's he's he he looks like there was a that that's Lord Soth's ride. That's the one I was talking about. That's him and his skeleton knights going into. That's actually an event that happens in one of the books. So, um, Kitiara now has Lord Soth on her side. She's somehow worked him to her side. I don't. I, I can't remember which deal they made, um, but. It was to, to protect her from Ariacus because, you know, she can't fly, uh, fly him off. But Lord Soth, uh, he'd be no problem for Lord Soth. Um, oh, actually, I do know the deal that worked out. Um, he's going to give what they're going to do. And we all knew this. She's going to. In the in this supposed exchange for tennis, she's going to capture Lorana and give her to the Dark Queen, and then in turn, uh, she's not going to be dead after this. Well, she probably will be dead, but she's going to be given to Lord Soth for eternity. So, um, I mean, we get a little bit of, you know, I like this part. It's not an actual chapter. It's just called The Night of the Black Rose. 
And it's Kitty R. explaining, quote, As you know, began Kitty R., Lord Soth was a true and noble knight of Slamnia, but he was an intensely passionate man, lacking in self-discipline, and this was his downfall. Soth fell in love with a beautiful elf maid, a disciple of the king, proof, king, king priest of Istar. He was married at the time, but the thoughts of his wife vanished at the sight of the elf maid's beauty. Forsaking both his sacred marriage vows and his knightly vows, Seth, Soth gave in to his passion. Lying to the girl, he seduced her and brought her to live at Dargard Keep promising to marry her his wife disappeared under sinister, sinister circumstances like i said he killed her um saw and then of course this is what happened when he became lord soth quote as he was told that she was being unfaithful to him his elven wife quote soth's passions took hold of him destroying his reason in a jealous rage rage he rode back to dargard keep entering his door he accused the innocent girl of betraying him then the cataclysm start, struck the great chandelier and the antry whale fell to the floor consuming the elf maiden and her child in flames as she died she called down a curse upon the night condemning him to an eternal dreadful life soth and his followers perished in the fire only to be reborn in hideous form um his entire existence is at night he never sleeps and he probably would want to sleep even though being an undead thing his the image of his wife is burned into the floor and you can't take it off um and then the elf the the uh, the elf clerics who turned him aside and lied to him have become banshees that wail about that wail to him about his wife and kid every night like and he just has to sit there and listen to it in his in his throne He's just he's such a sounds like awesome so much fun so such a fun character you know sounds like a miserable existence oh yeah definitely I mean but he's he's earned it he's earned every bit of it um then we get we uh we're Bacaris you know the he's been captured of course that Tasselhoff that great hero has captured him and he was a hero I mean even though he said he did a single handed and that's not quite accurate but um. Uh, we get to see things from his point of view. He's in in, a, in his cell. Quote, Bacara slept fit, fitfully in his jail cell. Though haughty and insolent during the day, his nights were tortured by erotic dreams of Kitiara and fearful dreams of his execution, execution at the hands of the Knights of Slamnia. Or perhaps it was his execution at Kitiara's hands. He was never certain when he woke in a cold sweat which it had been. Lying in his cold cell in the still hours of night when he could not sleep, Bacara's cursed the elven woman who had been the cause of his downfall. Over and over he plotted his revenge upon her, if only sh- she would fall into his hands. Bacara's was thinking of this, hovering between sleep and wakefulness when the sound of a key in the lock of his cell door brought him to his feet. It was near dawn, near the hour of execution. Perhaps the knights were coming for him. Who is it? Bacaris called harshly. Hush, commanded a voice. You're in no danger. If you keep quiet and do as you were told. Bacaris sat back down on his bed in astonishment. He recognized the voice. How not? Night after night had spoken in his vengeful thoughts. The elf woman and the commander could see two other figures in the shadows, small figures, the dwarf and the kinder, most likely. They always hung around the elf maid. She is... Um. Now coming to, she's doing this on in secret. She's gonna come smuggle him out, trade him for Tannis. You know, Flint and Tassoff shaking their heads and probably fighting her the whole way. You know, but trying to protect her because they love her. You know, um, she tells him of it, and uh, you know, we get his reaction. Quote: it, This is after he said something about uh, Tannis banging Kidiara, like being intimating that basically intimating that him and uh, Tannis are Eskimo brothers with Kitty or is basically what he says. Um, he was expecting a reaction. He got it quote. 
Now there was a reaction. He saw the delicate jaws clench. The shoulders trembled beneath the cloak. Without a word, Lorana turned and stalked out of the cell. So he was right. This had something to do with the bearded half-elf. But what? Tannis had left Kit and Flotsam. Remember, he doesn't know about this because it's not an actual thing. And even if it was, he wouldn't know. Had she found him again? Had he returned to her? Bakaris felt silent, wrapping a cloak around him. Not that it mattered, not to him. He would able to, he would be able to use his new information for his own revenge. Recalling Lorana's strained and rigid face in the moonlight, Bakaris thanked the Dark Queen for her favors as the dwarf shoved him out of the cell door. Um, they're sneaking out of the city now. We get a... A, a nice but kind of sad thing too um there's a door that you know they got to pick the lock so you know you know who's going to do that um he's tessa hall said this leads to some stairs isn't it flint asked him how he knows um quote i used to come to calaman when i was little tess said finding this slender piece of wire his small skilled hand slipped inside the lock my parents brought me we always came in and out this way why didn't you use the front gate? Or would that have been too simple, Flint growled. Hurry up, ordered Lorana impatiently. We would have used the front gate, Taz, manipulating the wire. Ah, there. Removing the wire, he put it carefully back into his pouch, then quietly swung the old door open. Where was I? Oh, yes, we would have used the front gate, but Kenner weren't allowed. Um, and Flint says, well, you, then you came in anyway. I mean, I, I, I would think that Flint... He he thinks they're a pestiferous race, but he still loves Tasshoff. I mean, I thought he, I would think he would get a little offended about that. Like you're just as good as other people, and then we continue. Um, and his parents, you know, Taz's parents considered an oversight. Quote: They always considered an oversight. I mean, why would we be on the same list as goblins? Someone must have put us there accidentally. But my parents didn't consider it polite to argue, so we just came in and out by the side door. Easier for everyone all around. Here we are. Open that door. It's not usually locked. Oops. Careful, there's a guard. Wait until he's gone. Um, then they come upon the Draconian. Uh, his name's Gokken. He was the one who trout, who tracked uh, Tannis and, and uh, Flotsam. You know that he's that guy. Like he's uh, he's basically Kitty R's personal assistant and assassin. Like he's I can't I, I'd have to look him up which kind of uh, Draconian he is. I think he might be a Civac, which they're really powerful and intelligent. Um, the Arax are like crazy powerful. Like they are can use lots of magic and they're just, you know, that's the gold dragon draconian. The Civax are the silver dragon. Um, but they come, he, he ta- follows them. He leads all of them to uh, the outskirts of the city in this wooded area. And they find that he has two wyverns. They're waiting. Wyverns are, well, I'll uh, read that description. Quote, Distantly related to dragons, wyvern are smaller and lighter and often often used by the high lords to relay messages as the griffins were used by the elven lords. Not nearly as intelligent as dragons, the wyvern are noted for their cruel and chaotic natures. natures. The animals in the grove peered at the companions with red eyes. Their scorpion-like tails curled menacingly, tipped with poison. The, kale, this, the tail could sting an enemy to death within seconds. Um... He's going to Bacarus is now playing this up and they get a thing where, you know, Laura asked him, was it true about Tannis? Like, how should I know? I've been in a cell, you know, whatever. But um, they're basically caught at this point. I mean, because then Bacarus starts threatening, like, you're going to get on the wire and ride with me and I'm going to go take you back to Kitty R and all this stuff. And he starts threatening Taz and Flint and said, I'll have the wire and kill them if they, you know. Why he didn't just kill them immediately, uh, you know, I don't know. It's a plot device, of course, you know, but um, 
maybe to just keep make her more amenable so she wouldn't fight him. I don't know. So, um, then he lies and tells, uh, um, He says that the, the dark lady, Kitty R, sent him to Raqqa to prepare for audience with the queen. It's, it's all bullshit. And then uh, Tess Hoff has something to say. Quote, you know, Flint Tess said solemnly, Tennis was really fond of Kitty R. Do you remember that party of at the end of the last home? It was Tennis's day of life gift party. He'd just come of age by Elvis Tennis, and boy, was that some party. Do you remember? Caramon got a tank of veil dumped over his head when he grabbed Ezra. And Raceland drank too much wine, and one of his spells misfired and burned up Odic's apron. And Kit and Tennis were together in that corner next to the fireplace, and they were, you know... Um, then that gets on Bacaris's nerves because he is jealous of Tannis with Kitty R. So he's, she tells him, if you don't shut the kinder up, I'm going to kill him. Um, they're, um, now they're flying through the air and Tess off and, and Flint are discussing, um, you know, that Bacaris is obviously up to no good and all this stuff. You know, they, they, they know it's a trap, but you know, but, uh, We get another thing with Flint and his his health. Quote the dwarf. He says, "Oh, never mind." The dwarf felt dizzy all of a sudden. That's in a conversation he was having with Tassoff. He was finding it hard to breathe, trying to take his mind off himself. He stared gloomily down at the treetops emerging from the shadows as the sun began to rise. Um, then Macarus doesn't take them to Dargard. He takes them to this um, uh, this little cave wooded area. Um, and then he basically tells him that stay here or I'm going to have the wyvern kill you. Me and Laura and I go in this cave and he's going to rape her. It's basically what he's going to do. Um, he almost, I mean, he backhands Flint, basically knocks him out. Um, let's see. They get in an argument and then uh, he, he drags her in the cave. She fights him at first and then, you know, Another thing to admire Lorana for. There's a lot of. I'm sorry. There's so much silence here. It's just trying to, you know, do it justice and trying to give you everything and not, you know, I don't know. It's there's so much stuff here that's not pertinent that I'm trying to get through to get to what's going on. Quote. It was an old elven defense, self defense technique. Flynn had seen it done often and he tensed, ready to act as Lorana's eyes rolled up, her body sagged, and her knees seemed to give way. Instinctively, Bacaris reached to, grab, to catch her. No, you don't. I like my woman lively. Oof! Lorana's fist slammed into his stomach, knocking the breath from his body. Doubling over in pain, he fell forward. Bringing her knee up, Lorana caught him directly under the chin. As Bacaris pitched into the dirt, Flint grabbed the sternal kinder and slid off the wyvern. Um, she tells him, Flint, to run and get in the woods. Um, Bacaris recovers quickly. You know, he is a skilled fighter. Quote, but Bacaris, his face twisted with rage, reached out his hand and grabbed Lorana's ankle. She stumbled and fell flat, kicking, frant- kicking frantically at him. Wheeling a tree limb, Flint, Flint leaped at Bacaris as commander was struggling to his feet. Hearing Flint's roar, Bacaris spun around and struck the dwarf in the face with the back of his hand. In the same motion, he caught a hold of Lorana's arm and dragged her to her feet. Then turning, he glared at Taz, who had run up beside the unconscious dwarf. Lady and I are going into the cave, Bakar said, breathing heavily. He gave Lorana's wrench, arm a wrench, causing her to cry out pain. Make one move, Kender, and I'll break her arm. Once we get into the cave, I don't want to be disturbed. There's a dagger in my belt. I'll be holding it to the lady's throat. Do you understand, little fool? Um, this is 
you felt bad for Ty. He's only like a child because he says, yes, sir. And he's just like, I'll stay here with Flint, you know, doesn't know what to do. Um, I always felt really bad for him right there. Um, and then we get a, a very, uh, it, it, it was meant to be like creepy the way this came out. I know when they wrote, when they wrote it, Quote, blinded by tears, Lorana stumbled forward. As if to remind her she was trapped, Bacaris twisted her arm again. The pain was excruciating. There was no way to break free of the man's powerful grip. Cursing herself for falling into this trap, Lorana tried to battle her fear and think clearly. It was hard. The man's hand was strong, and his smell, the human smell, reminded her of Tannis in a horrifying way. Um, and then Bacaris sees that, I guess, and taunts her with it. Quote, for an instant, Bacaris' grip on Lorana's arm tightened almost past endurance. Then it loosened. His hand slipped from her arm. Then Lorana tore free from his grip, then spun around to face him. Blood oozed from b- between Bacaris' fingers as he clutched his side where Tassel's little knife still protruded from the wound. Drawing his own dagger, the man lunged at the defiant kinder. I love that. Tass snuck up behind him and stuck him, you know. Um... Something snapped at Lorana, letting loose a wild fury and hatred she had not guessed lurked inside her. No longer feeling any fear, no longer care if she lived or died. Lorana had one thought in mind. She would kill this human male. She jumps on him um, and goes for his knife. Um, quote, for a, month, for a moment, she could see nothing through the red mist before her eyes. When it cleared, she saw Tess Hoff roll the body over. Bacaris lay dead. His eyes stared up at the sky, a look of profound shock and surprise on his face. His hand still clutched the dagger he had driven into his own gut. Um, what happened? Lorana whispered, quivering with rage, anger, and revulsion. You knocked him down and he fell on his knife, Tess said calmly. But before that, oh, I stuck him, Tess said, plucking his knife from the man's side, and he looked at it proudly. And Caraman told me it wouldn't be of any use until I met a vicious rabbit. Wait until I tell him. Um, then, you know, everything is going to be all right. Um, and then our old friend shows up. Flint is looking at, he's getting up, he's been hit, right? And he's getting up to, to see what's going on. And then he sees something approaching and it's not encouraging. Quote, in the name of Reorx, the dwarf said, his voice breaking, what is that? The figure moved relentlessly toward Lorana, who held spellbound at its command, could do nothing but stare at it. Dressed in antique armor, it must have been a Knight of Salamnia, but the armor was blackened as if it had been burned by fire. An orange light flared beneath its helm, while the helm itself seemed perched on empty air. The figure reached out an armored arm. Flint choked in horror. The armored man did not e- did not end in a- the armored arm did not end in a hand. The knight seemingly grasped hold of Lorana with nothing but air, but she screamed in pain. Falling to her knees in front of the ghastly vision Her head slumped forward She collapsed senseless from the chill touch The knight released his grip Letting the inert body slip to the ground Bending down the knight lifted her in his, in, in his arms This Lord Soth Has been sent by Kitty Ara. Uh, she was playing the angles the entire time um, then he, he talked He, uh, he looks at uh, Taz and Flint Quote, go back to Calaman, said a hollow voice. Tell them we have the elf woman. The dark lady will arrive at tomorrow at noon to discuss terms of surrender. This even, this even scared Tasselhoff. Lord Soth has that effect even on him. Quote, Taz stared off and started off to the woods at a run. For a moment, Flint stood angry and irresolute, staring after Lorana. Then his face crumpled in agony. He's right, he mumbled. I can't go after that thing either. Whatever it was, it wasn't of this world. I missed a part, though. I mean, I missed the part I was wanting to read. 
um, Flint said he's going to go after it. And then Tassoff says, no, stammered Tassoff, his face strained and stained. Strained and white as he stared after the night. Whatever that thing was, we can't fight it. I, I was scared, Flint. The kinder shook his head in misery. I'm sorry, but I can't face that thing again. We've got to go back to Cowman. Maybe we can get help. Um, and that's when he said, yeah, we can't go after it because we, we, we have no chance against that thing. Lord Soth, yeah, they would have less than no chance. You know, you just kill them, point at them and say die, and they would die, you know. Quote, turning away, Flint caught a glimpse of Bacaris lying beneath Lorana's cloak. Swift pain cramped the dwarf's heart. Ignoring it, Flint said to himself with sudden certainty, he was lying about Tannis, and so was Kittyara. He's not with her, I know it. The dwarf clenched his fist. I don't know where Tannis is, but someday I'll have to face him, and I'll have to tell him. I let him down. He trusted me to keep her safe, and I failed. The dwarf closed his eyes. Then he heard Tannis shout, sighing. He stumbled blindly after the kinder, rubbing his left arm as he ran. How will I ever tell him, he moaned. How? Thank <laughs> you.